A good haircut can be a game changer. I mean, everybody wants to look their best for those social media pics, right? So get yourself to Sport Clips at Sport Clips Haircuts. They hair do like no one else hair does. See what they did there? Not only is it the home of champion haircuts, but they've also made relaxing and unwinding the name of the game. Level up your haircut with the MVP haircut experience. It's a spa day for your follicles. Check this out. You get a seven pressure point massaging shampoo along with a perfectly steamed hot towel all while sports plays on the TV. Does it get any better than that? No. You can want it all and have it all at Sport Clips. It's a game changer. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Talk is Jericho, baby. Talk is Jericho. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pot of thunder and rock and roll today. I've got, uh, well, the original wrestling legend here. Uh, the pioneer who set the tone and table for all WWE champions, including myself. I'm talking about the amazing, the legendary Bruno Sammartino. Very proud uh, to have him on the show today. He held the world championship, the WWE world title, for two months shy of 12 years. <laughs> 12 years, man. Can you imagine that? Nowadays, it's 12 days. Uh, Bruno grew up in Italy during World War II emigrated to the United States, got into weightlifting and bodybuilding. He was about to play football for the Pittsburgh Steelers until he got a better offer from professional wrestling. He had the support of a wife and a young child, and pro wrestling offered him a lot more money than the NFL, so he decided to give it a shot. And that's, uh, well, that all began there. The rest is history. That's just part of the incredible story you're going to hear today. His mother was on the run from the Nazis as Bruno and his family hid in a cave. She would have to go down in the city and get food and bring it up uh, uh, to the cave where Bruno was living as a child. So he's got an amazing life, uh, not just from wrestling, but before and after. I sat down with Bruno at his favorite Italian restaurant in Pittsburgh, and we talked for almost two hours. And that was the caveat. If he wanted, uh, if I wanted him on my show, I had to meet him at uh, his favorite Italian restaurant. And he bought dinner, by the way. What a perfect gentleman, great storyteller, completely lucid, and he's got uh, his brain uh, power is tremendous. He remembers everything. He's in his 80s. He's in great shape. Uh, he's an inspiration to us all as a performer, as a wrestler, as a human being. Uh, I'm so excited to present to you Bruno Sammartino. It's such an incredible conversation. No uh, frills. I want to get right to it. But before we do, uh, have you signed up to work out with Diamond Dallas Page yet? Huh? You got to do it. You want to look good in your 80s and function good in your 80s like Bruno Sammartino? Well, you got to get into DDP Yoga now, no matter what age you are. Now, DDP's taking DDP Yoga on the road, holding a workshop this Friday, June 23rd in Worcester, Massachusetts, close to Boston. If you want to see when he's going to be doing another DDP Yoga workshop in your town, just go to ddpyogaworkshops.com. Now, you know my 
much DDP yoga has helped me in my life. Uh, I've been doing it uh, when I was in the WWE. Now that I'm getting ready to go back to the, uh, do a couple matches in Japan, I've been firing it up. I'm actually right now in the middle of Utah, Green River, Utah, uh, filming a really cool show, uh, The Searching, for the legendary hidden treasure of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I've been doing yoga in my fine uh, uh, suite here at the Comfort Inns in Green River, Utah. Shout out to them. But it's been keeping me on point. We've had long days, long drives, uh, ATVs bumping all over the place, lots of adventures. So uh, DDP Yoga is keeping me straight, keeping me limber, keeping me feeling good. Uh, and no stiff joints, no soreness after the filming, no soreness after shows, after plane rides. DDP Yoga is helping uh, my singing as well because of what DDP Yoga does for your core. Singing comes from your core, and uh, DDP Yoga has helped me strengthen that up as well. So DDP Yoga can also help you as well. It's more than just a workout program. It's truly a healthier way to live. And like I said, the app lets you do the workouts anytime, anywhere, any place, right from your smartphone or tableta. And the app's also loaded with nutrition tips, cooking tips, and tools to track your progress. And right now, right now, DDP is giving you 20% off the DDP Yoga Now app and all DDPY-related matters when you go to ddpyoga.com slash Jericho. Take advantage of the deal that DDP is offering. 20% off the DDP Yoga Now app and all related matters at ddpyoga.com slash Jericho, 20% off hats, t-shirts, yoga mats, heart monitors, so much more. Just go to ddpyoga.com slash Jericho. That's ddpyoga.com slash Jericho. Change your life today. Get in the best physical and mental shape you've ever been in and start now. ddpyoga.com slash Jericho. Talk is Jericho. Yeah, because we were talking pretty much in the mic, so there's a little background ambiance here. Okay. Um, and okay, can you, am I okay here? This yeah, tone? you're, you're you, perfect. You, you, oh, okay, you, sound, you sound amazing. So, oh, uh, and uh, it's a pretty special night for me because I'm here with Bruno Sammartino. And the thing I like about it is we're in an Italian restaurant. Yes, indeed. And, and the funny thing is, I thought that you wanted to meet me here, and you thought that I wanted to meet you here. But the guy who set it up put us both here, so we're in the middle of the restaurant having a chat. <laughs> and it'll be fine, yeah, because I'm, I know you're going to enjoy this place. No, it's great. I just love the idea of, of being with you, kind of a, this a, a Italian-American hero, and basically the, the embodiment of the American dream in a lot of ways here in an Italian restaurant in Pittsburgh, your home. It's, like I said, it's the perfect place to, to get a chance to, to sit down and talk with you. Uh, have you lived in Pittsburgh your whole time in the States? I came from Italy in 1950. And my father had come. See, I was born in 1935 in October. January of the following year, 36, uh, 1936, my father came to America, like a lot of immigrants, to work here, but to make some money, but always to build, because we lived in, in the old country up in the mountains and we were on a farm. And we more or less, uh, you know, we, 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 we lived on our own by growing things and what have you. But he had to buy land. I had to build a home, so he would come here, work, and go back. But this time, when he came over and the war broke, uh, they closed all passages. So my dad was stuck in America, and my poor mom was stuck in Italy with all the kids. So he would come over to America to work. Yes. And what, what was he doing? Well, in the old country, he had been a blacksmith. So for a while, blacksmiths still existed with construction work, but after that, kind of faded away. He worked construction, then he got jobs in the coal mines. And then when we got over here, he switched from the coal mines 
Pittsburgh used to be a big steel city town. He got a, a job in the, with the steel mills, and that's where he worked until he retired. So he would come back and forth on a steamship or something? Uh, or yeah, that's plane? right. That's right. <laughs> the cheapest way possible to travel. And he built a home in the old country, bought land. So we lived off our land because we grew everything. and So like everybody else mm-hmm. did in my town. And uh, so I never knew my dad till I came here in 1950 because, like I said, I was three months old. Wow. And he and was stuck outside of the border, so they closed the whole border. Oh, so he was here in Pittsburgh. Wow. Uh, he had to come here because he, he had new people here that he could get work. So he came here, and that's how we finally wound up and settled in Pittsburgh because my dad came here, he was working and so forth, and uh, and he, he may decide every time he went back and forth, he always was in Pittsburgh that he so, came. So was that hard when, you, obviously it was hard when your father is stuck over here, it must have been torturous for him, but even for your family with now your mom is kind of in charge of everything. It was complete torture, as my dad told the story many times, what hell he was going through, because he couldn't get any news, he heard about all the bombings and everything that were going on in our area, known as the Abruzzo region of Italy. And we were being bombed, I mean, on a daily basis, and uh, and there were all kind of disaster. And we knew, we had to go to the mountain, a mountain called Vallarocca. That's where we went to hide from the uh, Nazis. And because, unfortunately, the regular German troops weren't so... They, they were regular soldiers. But we were occupied by the SS troops. Wow. The very elite troops. Uh, Those fact, are the worst, right? Oh, they were absolutely the worst. When we left my town in, in a hurry overnight because we heard tanks and stuff coming through, uh, the people didn't get didn't take it serious enough, didn't run enough. We had what we call La Piazza in the center of the town, the square. Uh, those of us who took off like the devil running toward the mountains far away, it was a one-day, 24-hour climb to get to where we were hiding. But uh, like a couple hundred people didn't get out enough. They got them all. They lined them right at La Piazza, and then they, and they mowed them all down. So, so the everybody. Germans, the SS, were coming into your town basically just to take over completely. They were taking over. Yeah, they were taking over all the towns and everything else because the Allies were following, and they were fighting, and they were trying to you know, to, to invade them more and more. But they, they, in those mountains where we come from, they were able to – they were great fighters. They were tough, and they were um, – situated in ways that they had so many ways that they could see when the allies were coming and because like if you say where i came from i mean we came up in the mountains and so the allies had a tremendous problem trying to occupy our areas because the germans were so very well you know uh uh, uh positioned right to to fight and uh, and as a result it made it very difficult for us because it prolonged us up there and uh, when they find out where we were, they start bombing us as well. We buried a lot of people, you know. Like bombing the caves or where were you guys yeah. hiding caves or in how? No, not caves. There were some small caves, but we didn't stay there. Right on top of this mountain, we found the flat area. They cut the, the wood, the, the woods, and it, it looked like a, almost like an Indian tipi. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, then rep put stuff, whatever. Then I was, I was a kid. I was eight, nine years old at the time. I was there from the time I was eight and a half till the time I was ten. I was up, up uh, in that mountain, and it was very difficult because um, my mom used to have to climb down that mountain 
make sure there was nighttime when she got to the town because they had the, the, the uh, guards, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then when she would sneak, we, we had all this on film. Uh, she would go behind our home while the Nazis were sleeping upstairs because we made provisions for our winners over there to survive. Right. And so she would uh, add a sack and she would carry as much as she could put up potatoes or corn or wheat, and then she would try to make her way back up. So she'd be gone one day, 24 hours gone, and 24 hours to come back. And so we were scared to death because I had lost a sister and a brother, but I still had one sister and one brother. So we're up there, and we're scared to death because you're always hearing bombings and shooting. And we were scared to death. Is mom going to come back? What do we do if you don't come back? We were scared to death, you know. Now, I was the youngest, but my brother's a year and a half older than me. So if I was, let's say, nine, by the time after six months, he was ten and a half, and my sister was like 13. So, I mean, you know, we were all right, yeah, just the kids. And I remember, as we showed on the documentary, we on way on top, there was a big rock bigger than this table a good bit bigger and we used to sit in that rock for hours because there was a pen that we knew mom that's the way she had to you could back. see her pathway to where she would and walk we were so scared she might not come back and when she th- when we thought it was time that she should have been back we'd be sitting there sometimes for hours because she'd be so delayed and what have you and but when mom when we'd see her coming up that it was like like everything was wonderful. We were we weren't hungry anymore. We were so excited. Free. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was quite a deal. So how did you end up leaving there after you said you stayed there till you were ten years old? What what happened to what happened then was that the allies it came with uh, we had our men from my town. They joined with the allies and trying to show them different ways that they could try to get to our area because the Germans were so well situated that every time they came, they, 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 lost, they lost a lot of lives and they had to be driven back. So they showed them different ways, longer ways, but to come in. Anyway, a battle started that lasted two days, continuous. The Germans didn't get beat, believe it or not, but they had heavy losses, but the Allies had heavy losses. But what happened was the Allies retreated, but the Germans, they, they knew they were getting no reinforcements, they were getting no supplies, so they knew that they had to make a move because another battle like that, and they couldn't withstand it. So that's when they moved out of our area, right after that two-day battle. And we got word from one of our guys who had been with the Allies who made, made his way back up the mountain because he had probably the parents or the wife or whatever and told us that we could make our way back into our town. And when we started the by now I had gotten sick and nobody knew what was wrong with me. They thought I had pneumonia this and that. It was actually rheumatic fever. Yeah. And I, I so anyway, long story, uh, my uncle was up there too. He, he carried me on the piggyback going down long, long trip. Uh, but by the way, but while we were up there talk about my mom taking food, the winters were so vicious that there were times where it was impossible and we literally lived for three, four days at a time on snow and snow alone. That's all we had. We didn't have it. How? How do you live through that? Well, a lot of people didn't. That's why there's a lot of people buried uh, up there. And if that war had lasted another month or two, nobody would have ever heard of mm-hmm. San Martino. <laughs> 
Do you, do you feel like, I mean, I grew up in Winnipeg, Canada, which is a very oh, cool area. There. You, you have many times. But if you grew up there in the winter, uh, you know what it's like to be really cold, minus 30, minus 40. And I think it made me kind of a tougher person. Oh, yeah. Do you feel that this upbringing that you had made you into a tougher man to mentally and physically? My experience throughout all that, when I got into wrestling, for example, I went through some tough times, like a lot of guys do in the beginning and that. But where, everybody, where it seemed extra tough for some people that I knew in the business because we're really struggling. You know, we're making big money back in the day. <laughs> uh, to me, it wasn't that big of a struggle because I, I always compared to what I had gone through. <laughs> right, and as so, a kid, you yeah. Know, I'd gone without food for days and days at a time. And, and the cold, those winters up there, one has to experience it to believe it, how bitter those mm-hmm. winter, the winter mm-hmm. was over there. So when you've gone through all that, it's very hard to uh, to think that something else got the later was tough. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it amazing to you? I mean, you're you're 81 years old, almost 82, to think back that within your lifetime, that that sort of Nazi and and the war and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. Just how things used to be in comparison to the way they are now. Does it does it to think back to those times? Does it does it is it hard to believe that there was Nazis that were killing all these people and doing all these things? A few years ago, we went back, and a friend of mine who unfortunately passed away was a great man. He wanted to do this documentary because he thought that the whole story was very fascinating. And a Hollywood producer, a guy named Scott Rosenfeld, he made the journey as well. He's the guy who made the movie uh, Home Alone. He made the trip up there. Famous movie, right. And uh, they, they wanted to uh, go up there so that we could interview and talk about everything that went on and how, what it was like to go up there and all that. I didn't want to go. I had sworn years before. I went back to the old country often, but I would never go up that mountain because it was such a horrible nightmare. I never want to have any part of it. But this Marty, his name was Marty Lazaro, he said, Bruno, I was talking to Scott Rosenfeld. He says, it's really important that you make, that we go up there because this way they want to film it. And if a movie ever comes out of this that Scott wants to do, he says, you know, we, we, we have to have you up there to talk about it, describe, show it. And so I, 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 I didn't want to hold anything back. I said, okay. But I'll tell you something, Chris. Making that journey, it was such a nightmare for me. It's like everything came back to life, right. you know. Um, the, the trip wasn't as long now because here's what happened. As the years have gone by, they cut a lot of woods toward those mountains. So they had like a dirt road. So we were in a big SUV, and we traveled for about 25 minutes on that. When it got started getting steep, that you couldn't go by anymore, they had this big, huge tractor, which shows on the documentary. We climbed on that, and we were on that for an hour and a half climbing. But then we reached the point where the thing couldn't climb anymore because it was getting too, too difficult and steep and whatever. And at that point, we had to do it on foot, which took another five hours, four and a half to five hours. Wow. To go. It's about walking. Walking, yeah. And we got up to the top. And over there, of course, it, it was, uh, for me, I admit, this, <laughs> I was no spring chicken now. You know, this is only a, 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 three, four years ago. I was like a little kid. I saw that rock where I used to spend hours. I pictured my mom coming up and, and I had to do an interview, and I'm not, I'm, I should be ashamed, but I'm not. I, I started bawling like a little kid. It just tore me, my guts out. It really did. 
because it brought everything so bad. It was like being in a time machine going back to that place. Yeah, yeah. I just was in Mexico last week. We had a show there, a WWE show, and I used to. I started working in Mexico, my career there, and I went back to the hotel where I lived in 1994, 95. I hadn't been there in 21 years, and it was exactly the same. And I walked in there, and like you said, all those memories come flooding back of the guys that I used to know that have passed away, and, and the friends that you made, the experiences. It was just like a snapping of the fingers, right? there you know yeah you when you experience something like that you understand yes a lot of people you know it's it's like my kids my my sons they heard the story from what they were you know while my parents were still living from my sister my brother and they thought they understood but when we made that journey and they made the trip to that mountain uh they got emotional they said my god we heard the story so many times but I had no idea that it was like this. I said, well, you had no idea it was like what? I said, all you experienced was <laughs> climbing up and get to the top. Right. You haven't experienced the winter. You haven't experienced going without food for four, three, four days at a time. <laughs> yeah. You haven't experienced the fear of the bombs, of the plane flying overhead and, and throwing bombs. Wondering where your mom was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or, or your mother, you know, like that. But, but you know what I mean. Sure. You can tell a story, but... Unless you experience something like that, it's very difficult They'll never for know. people to really know what Did, it was, was like. Was that part of your story? Did people know that when you were the world champion for Vince Sr. in New York? Did they know this background of yours? Uh, we never did those kind of interviews that much, you know. They knew that I came from uh, Italy, and that's so why I was interviewed, and they would have me speak Italian when, on my interviews, because the business was different then. We depended on, on the arena to make a living. Today, right. you guys... You have everything, you know. You have, you have the, the 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 arena too, but you have the uh, TV and pay per view and pay per views and merchandising, all wonderful things that I wish to God we had. <laughs> okay, but, but we we didn't have any of that. So I had a, for example, how did I get to wrestle the Boston Garden or Madison Square or that so many times? Because we'd go there every three weeks and sometimes four weeks. Year in and year out. Every three weeks you would go to the garden? In the garden in the 60s, we used to go every three weeks. In wow. fact, in every year of a, a, a European wrestler named Hans Mortier. I've heard the name, yes. Okay, Hans Mortier was a great wrestler, terrific wrestler. And I wrestled him a lot when he came to. He was a Dutchman from Holland. And I wrestled him three times in Madison Square Garden in six weeks. <laughs> and we sold out three times. Yeah. Well, that's the famous thing at Bruno Sammartino has the most sellouts in Madison Square Garden history. Now, it's, it's, it, when you think about that, if you put your career 10 years with the WWE or 15 years, how many times were you going to the Garden to be able to do 150 sellouts or whatever it was? I mean, that shows right there. I wrestled it over 200 times. I, you, know, you know, Here's what happened. I didn't know. How do you keep track? They, you know, in wrestling, sounds like baseball, football, they keep all the stats, they keep all the... I, you know, when somebody says to me, how many times you wrestle in, uh, in the Capitol Center in Washington or Boston Garden or, or any of the big arenas uh, in the Northeast, I had no idea. How, how am I supposed to know? You're working every day, every day. How do you keep track? But they did a story uh, on me. Every year, it was a TV show. It was called The Greatest Sports Legend. You ever hear that? I have not, no. No. Okay, every week they would do a, they had a feature. They had all the sports, basketball, baseball. And in fact, the uh, on my part, the only wrestler they would do was me. 
because the, the, the producer, a guy by the name of Burl Rothfeld from New York, and he couldn't believe how, how the garden would always sell out. One night there was a, a, a show on TV, like a Monday night, where, where Joe Namath, the Jets, were playing. I forget the team, but it was a, like... Uh, they were like a Monday night football show. Monday yeah. night football, but it was like a playoff kind of... Gotcha. Game. Big game. And, and they were blown away because the same night I wrestled in the garden... Not only did we sell out the garden, but we sold out the what used to be called the Felt Forum downstairs. They call it something. The else. theater that's right next door to the garden. It was about forty-five hundred people, but the police estimated, besides selling out the garden and selling out the Felt Forum, they estimated three, four thousand people were turned away. So the paper the next day really gave us publicity. They say with Joe Namath and the Jets and the playoffs and these wrestlers come in there and they and they did this enormous thing, you know. But we, we had to do things depend on that stuff because that's how you got paid. And not that we made big money, but I was considered to be a big money maker, and I was making a hundred, hundred twenty-five. Although, in all honesty, that was good money back in those days. Okay. You know, we're going back to the sixties. Right, right, right. So you know, it's not like what you guys do today. But but for me, coming from Europe, uneducated, I went to high school. I went to language school for six months and to high school. So for a guy like me, uh, without anything to fall back to. I was the most grateful guy in the world. Well, sure. You know, uh, in fact, the one time my writer who saw me in the garden, and he got personal about how much did I make in the garden show, and I told him I was. I told him the truth. At that time, I was making about three thousand dollars, and he said to me, "What?" He was shocked. He says, "You better get yourself an attorney." And he said, "Because they're robbing you blind and this and that." Who said that to you? Huh? Who was saying that to you? This newspaper guy. Oh, newspaper guy. Who was okay. Interviewing yeah. me. And I thought to myself, I thought, are you crazy? Uh, who am I to be demanding more? Mm-hmm. 3000 in one night for me, coming from death's door right. over there. I, I, I told him, <laughs> whoa, never mind, pal. You're going to take your lawyer and shove it, right? Yeah, you're darn right. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. This, this is Talk is Jericho. You know, it's interesting because I just thought about this. When you got inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame, Arnold Schwarzenegger was the presenter. He inducted you. And there's a lot of similarities between you and Arnold. I mean, he's maybe five, six years younger than you, but it's almost the same. Ten years, maybe? Yeah, Colombo. You know Franco? Yeah, 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 yeah. He and I are five years apart. Okay. Uh, With with, uh, Arnold is uh, 69. He'll be 70 in... uh, July. Okay, so ten so, years difference, so but still a lot of a lot of well, similarities. No, they were lucky, him and Colombo. Colombo came from Italy too, but mm. as you know, Arnold came from Austria. They were lucky because they actually came were born at, right after the war. Okay, <laughs> so they didn't have the experience of right, the war. Right, you know right, what right. I mean? Yeah, you know. But I do. I because in the sixties when I first met with those guys, 
not bragging, Chris, but in those days I was a pretty strong guy. Yeah. I lifted some big weights in my day and did it all natural. Yeah. And I, I didn't even know what the, that stuff that exists. The, you you know. had never heard of steroids no, or performance enhancing drugs. I don't know what that was. Because you were built like a fr- like a like a cigarette machine with a head on it. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know what? You know why that came about? I'll tell you how they came about. When I came from Italy, I was very very sickly. Well, let me go back up a little bit. After the war, when we made our way back into our town, our town had been demolished because it had been bombed and all that. But in our home. There was, uh, bombed as it was from one side, there was still a part standing that had like almost a room and a half or two that we could actually stay, stay in, in. right. You know what I mean? So the Red Cross came uh, came through, and they dumped us in that, and they were checking all the wounded, the sick, whatever. And they told my mom when they checked me out, they told my mom, they said, look, they said, I'm sorry that you lost a daughter and, and a son. He says, but I hate to tell you, he says, but this fella, he's got a day or two at the most to live. Talking about you? Yeah. With yeah. your rheumatic fever? Rheumatic fever. Because, oh. you know, no doctors, no medicine, no hospitals. So, I, 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 you know, I was sick for three and a half years. Uh, I would, Mom would wrap me up in a thing and put me by a little stove that we had on the floor. Man. And she would keep turning me around. The, as old as they were, my mom was never went to school or anything. They knew that you can lay in one position all the time that something could happen to the body. I don't know what they knew. All I know is she kept picking me up. Then she would boil a, a thing of water like this, boil water. Then she would pick me up and tell me to breathe, breathe the, the fumes. Then my uncle went to a town called Villa Santa Maria, and he came back with the leeches. Wow. They put leeches all over my body. And the theory was that the uh, leeches would take all the poison blood out of your system. It's know, like something out of medieval... Day, I don't know if any of that stuff... It's like medieval times type stuff. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what happened. A doctor that had seen me came back like uh, a couple weeks later. They were checking up on... Uh, and uh, so it came to my house. He asked a next-door neighbor. He says, how did she take it, uh, the death of her son? And the lady said... Uh, and the lady said... Uh, Conchetta was her name, I remember. And she said, <laughs> she said, what do you mean? He says, well, you know, her boy that was deathly sick, I'm sure he died. Uh, she said, well, he didn't die. The guy said, I said he's still living. I, I don't believe it. So he came over to see me. And he told my mother, what did you do? How, how, how is he still living? My mother said about the leeches and about the uh, fumes, you know, boiling water. And the guy couldn't believe it. He says, he, he, he says I thought it was impossible. <laughs> so my, the, the reason I'm telling you all that, that's why when I came in 1947, we were supposed to come to America. My dad, by, by, when they connected, my mom and my dad, my father said, what should I do, come back or should I try to bring you over here? And my mom said, everything's destroyed here. For the sake of our children in the future, it would be wonderful if we could make our way to America. So my dad took whatever action he had to take. Because while he was here, he applied and he became an American citizen. Okay. So he could bring us over. But in 1947, unfortunately, I couldn't pass a physical because I was that sick still. I held my family back for three years till 1950 when everything was in quotas in those days. And in 1950, I barely, but I passed my physical. 
And so we got on the ship. So they wouldn't let you go unless you were of certain health? Yeah. Wow. No, you couldn't come over if you couldn't pass a physical. So when you got on the ship, and this is something, it's, it, I've never met anybody who had to travel on the ship over for, to America. What, what was that like? How long did it take? Do you remember a lot about that? It was hell. I'll tell you why. We left uh, my hometown. We went from my little town. We traveled to Naples. When we got to Naples, the following morning, we got on the ship. This was on February the 28th, the last day of, uh, of February. And we got on the ship, and that was the worst time you could travel on the sea. The sea is so rough in those winter months. They didn't have, like now, those, what they call them, stabilizers. Yeah, yeah, stuff. to keep the boat straight. Yeah. Right, and those ships weren't that big. <laughs> they had no Dramamine pills either, oh, I'm sure. Oh, my goodness. And I'll tell you, most of the time, we were locked underneath the ship. They had the, the top locked because the waves would come on top of on the deck, and, uh, and everybody was seasick. I'm sure. You want to talk about if a clear day you, you, you went on top of the ship, you saw a lot of spaghetti. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone had thrown up all the spaghetti. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. They, uh, I'm, I'm not kidding either. I'm not saying that. But you know what? As sick as I had been and my mom was worried about uh, how was I going to be able to do this, I did it. You know, I, 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 well, I wasn't that worse off, you know, when we landed. Met my dad at the uh, in Alice Island, you know, when we came in. We get on the train. My dad took us to the train, and we made our way to Pittsburgh. Long trip. Seemed like a very long trip to us at the time. When we got over here, we could speak a word of English. Nothing. So my dad enrolled us into this school. It was a language school so that we could learn how to speak English. But in the neighborhood... We were the only Italian family, and the reason why my dad bought that house, an old house, because my dad didn't drive or anything. When he walk out of our house, he make a right, and not even one block away, it was like a hundred steps, but it led him right to what we call the south side of Pittsburgh, where the steel mill was. So he could walk to work, and he could walk back, because he didn't drive. So that's how he bought that house. But, you know, kids... Uh, who knows what what the parents tell them or what. We were the only Italian family. So I started hearing words like Dago and Wap. I don't know what the heck that meant because <laughs> I never heard those words in Italy. <laughs> so I didn't know. And I used to hear people constantly, hey, Dago or Wap or Guinea. And, and I used to say, what, the, what were they saying? You know. But the worst part, that wasn't the worst. The worst part, they used to pick on you. And I used to get the hell beat out of me for no reason going and coming back. It got so bad that my father went to the school and he said, these kids have gone through hell in the old country, the war. He says, now they come here, the greatest country in the world, and they can even come to school and back. He says, without these kids, for whatever reason. So the, the teacher, very sympathetic, allowed me to go 15 minutes late and they would release me 15 minutes sooner. Oh, so you wouldn't get uh, so bullied, would, get beat up. I, and I would run home. <laughs> I would, because I was scared. I, I fought back. I, I will tell you that much. But it was useless. I was too weak. And I used to, get to, I used to come home. I was a black eye. I had cut, a bleeding nose, cut lip. And, you know, there's it, 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 nothing I could do. I, like I said, I was so weak. And a Jewish kid named Maurice Simon... God rest his soul because he's gone now. He felt sorry for me. He really did. 
I started, you know, when you're young and you go to a language school like that, you start picking up a little bit, you know. Not that I spoke great, but I, but I picked up enough. He said to me, I want to take you to the YMHA. That's a, well, actually, it was the YM and WHA, which means Young Men and Women Hebrew Association. Oh, okay. It was a club, but anybody could join. You didn't have to be Jewish. That's why he took me there. And he introduced me to the weight room. And I'd never seen, you know, in the mountains where I come from, who the heck ever heard of weightlifting? And I saw, now I don't know actually if I'd see them today, but at that time, when I seen these guys working out, I, I was impressed. I thought, wow. He said, by doing this, and I'll show you a little bit what to do, he says, you can get stronger, you can get healthier. And I, I said, yeah. So there was an Italian guy named Angelo Pasquarelli. I remember all these names. I remember names. all these names. Yeah. yeah. And he had the landscaping guy, uh, thing, business. So I went to work for him that summer cutting grass. And I earned $12. It cost $12 to join the Y. So I, I got my $12 and I joined. I kid you not, Chris, the first time I went there and worked out, I couldn't lift feathers. I mean, I was so weak, I couldn't lift up. And yet, on the way home walking, and this was about maybe a mile, not a mile and a half, two miles away from where I lived. And that was the only transportation was my feet, you know. Right. I didn't <laughs> But walking home, I had such a feeling. I remember it like it was yesterday. I had a feeling like, like this is going to be great for me. This is going to really do something special for me. I, I don't know why, because like I said, when I went there, it was pathetic. I couldn't lift nothing. But I got that, that feeling, and I couldn't wait till the next time, because he told us, Maurice Simon, that when you work out with the weights, you have to do it every other day like Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, something like that. So I couldn't wait. On Monday, I couldn't wait for Wednesday. Wednesday, I couldn't wait for, for Friday. But I went. I kept going, and he was showing me a little wee bit. And after a while, I, I was all skin and bones. I started seeing a little bit of meat on up these bones, you know. And I started getting a little wee bit stronger. Not big strong, but a little wee bit to where I could lift certain way do, right. to do what he did. And you know what? That inspired me so much. Because not only that, but up to this point, I, had, I was in death's door. And I was so weak all the time. There was a terrible feeling. I started feeling pretty good, you know. I started feeling like, wow, you know, this is, I'm feeling better. And that inspired me so much that I, I, beca I became a nut. Because people at the gym thought I was crazy. I worked out so hard, Chris, not bragging or complaining, but I was like a, like a maniac as I got bigger. The bigger I got, the stronger I got, the more I drove myself. Then I joined the wrestling team at school, and uh, I was wrestling, and I was lifting weights, and, I, and all of a sudden, I became like a different guy because I started gaining weight. You got confidence, and too. My, 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 my appetite became, like, <laughs> ridiculous. I'm eating, I'm eating, and I'm lifting, and I'm lifting. And uh, give you an example, I started high school. I was like, uh, by now, when I came over here, my dad took us for a physical. Now, picture this. 14 years old, I weighed 80. I, we, we wrote this stuff down. I kept it. I was 84 pounds. 14 years of age. Wow. When I went to high school, I was 115 pounds. When I got out of high school, Chris, I was 220. Wow. 1958, wow. 
1958, I was 270. The Steelers, Hart Rooney Sr., the owner, approached me because he used to come to the Y, but he's not the, the way I was. They, the rich people, the, we're talk, they used to go up to the health club. They get the massages, the steam, the sauna, you know what I mean, that, that <laughs> yeah. kind of stuff. We, we didn't go there. You're sitting in the bottom well, area. Yeah, the 12 bucks, that's okay, <laughs> the membership. But he saw me, and he said to me, son, he said, uh, he used to stop at the weight room that you, on our way up to the, the health club. There was, the elevator was by that floor. And he used to come, and he used to was fascinated because, not bragging, Chris, but I was pushing, pushing some pretty good weights at this time. Absolutely. 1959, with a two-second pause, two-second pause, you weren't allowed to wear any elbow pads, just a tank top. For okay. bench press? For bench press. And I did 565 pounds with a two-second two second pause. That's crazy. The, the judge would go like this. You put, you bring the weight to your chest, he would go 1,001, 1,002, and clap. And when he clapped, you pushed the weight up, but you weren't allowed to move any of your bond. I got up to 565. Without the two-second pause and everything, I did 575. This was in 1959. And at the time, Bob, did you ever hear of Bob Hoffman? Bob Moffin? Yeah, Bob Moffin. He was Bob Moffin, no. He was the head. Yeah, you heard of the York Barbell yeah, Club? Yeah, 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 sure. Well, he was the owner. Okay. And he was also the Olympic coach for the American Olympic weightlifting team. At that time, he declared my lift as a world record because nobody had ever done anything like that before. And then I competed. I used to go up at, up at York every year. They would have competition, and lifters would come from all over the country. I did that 565 pounds with the two-second pause. I did 755 on a full squat, and I mean full squat. I hated deadlifts, but I got up to 715 because I would only do deadlifts two weeks before competition because I didn't like them. They bothered me somewhat. So, I mean, so I became... Then I, he wanted me to be an Olympic lifter. So I started training for Olympic lifting, and I got up to... I did 365 pounds of military press, in those days, they had three, three lifts. The military press, two-hand snatch, and clean and jerk. I did, uh, I did 365 on the military press. I did 320 on a two-hand snatch. And I did 425 on the clean and jerk. You know what was amazing about this? As I look back, as I look back, it was amazing because I was 22 years old when I did this. And when you stop and think about where I was at 14 years of age, to 22 years of age, I would say today, looking back, that was progress. <laughs> I'll say. But you had a giant chest and big arms, your arms and legs, too. You had the right genetics for it. Well, yeah, because I was big boned. I was born, look, in my family, I was the biggest one. I was 11 and a half pounds when I was born. But unfortunately, because of suffering from malnutrition, Sickness, sickness and yeah. all that kind of stuff. I was like a skeleton, you know. Right, right, right. But so once I started eating and started building, then all those things came to life, you know. Right, right. And I had that advantage, you know what I mean? At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. 
You're listening to Talk is Jericho. Going back just quickly, we were talking about what, what, the relationship that you had with Schwarzenegger. When you met him, did you meet him bodybuilding somewhere? Did you meet him in New York or L.A.? Just curious because, like you said, you were a big, big man for that time, and so was he. You know, two guys coming from the old country. Right. I met him in New York. I was in New York, and uh, there was a guy named Tommy Minicello. I love how you remember all these names, by the way. It's great. Well, he, he owned the Mid-City Elf Club in New York City, and that's where I used to train, because he had a gym. Here's what I mean by a gym. Don't get me wrong. Today, they've come with so much modern yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah. and I'm sure it's all great stuff, but that wasn't my stuff. He had the uh, all, everything weights. So, iron know, barbells and the iron dumbbells. Dumbbells, 150 pounders. <laughs> I was the only guy who used to use I used to get 15 reps. The, the 150 pounds from the bench press with the dumbbells, and I used to get eight reps doing the flies with the same weights. Yeah, I was on Ripley's, believe it or not. Really? Because, yeah, they saw me with 150 pounds in each hand, and I got eight reps of these uh, flies. <laughs> anyway, they were having a, a Mr. Universe contest, and Tommy Minichello, because I had been in a weightlifting game, is a weightlifter and all that. He asked me if I would be a judge. I said, yeah, man, I think I'd like that. See all these great bodybuilders. And Arnold uh, had come to this country just in the 60s. And uh, I got to meet Arnold. Arnold. Actually, Arnold was very nice with me. He came over and he says, you know, to this day, it's amazing. He still speaks with a... He's <laughs> very he's a thick accent, I, right? I think I lost most of mine. <laughs> you did, yeah. He says to me, oh, Bruno, he said, uh, in Austria, I used to go buy the, the, the weightlifting magazines. And the wrestling magazine, and I used to always, you were everywhere. He says, and oh, he says, it's so good. He was very nice, like a fan almost. Mm -hmm. And here, I'm anxious to see him, because I had heard about him. Tommy had told me a lot about him, and I'd seen pictures of him. And I thought, wow, man, this guy's, because I knew the old-time bodybuilder. Like, did you ever hear names like John Grimmick? Yeah, 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 the old school guys. I was friends with Grimmick. Grimmick was great, by the way, great. Clarence Ross, uh, Marvin Eat, I don't know if you heard these games, but these guys were really, really great in their day. And Arnold, when I met Arnold and he posed, I was so impressed. I mean, the guy looked phenomenal. Yeah. And Colombo was something else. Another one, too, yeah. Strong. And uh, we had it right off. We became friends. So every time I wrestle in California, when I go to Los Angeles, I go to, I, I go to uh, Gold's Gym. The original Joe Gold. I don't know if you have Yeah, on Venice Beach, him. right? Yeah, huh? Joe, Joe Gold, the place on Venice Beach. Yeah. Yeah. But Joe Gold used to, but did you know this? Besides being a bodybuilder, competitive bodybuilder, he was also a wrestler for a while. I didn't know that. Yeah, he wrestled really? professionally for a while. <laughs> and he was a nice guy. I, I knew Joe. So I used to go work out over there, and I'd work out with Arnold and with Colombo and all those guys. Because I like, then I'd go out with uh, lunch or dinner or whatever. They would come to the Olympic Auditorium to watch me wrestle at night. We developed a good friendship, you know. Uh, no. And we went uh, out to lunch, to dinner, spent time together. And, and, and what you saw, uh, you know, I went to Columbus, Ohio, where they inducted me into the International Sports Hall of Fame. Arnold was there for the Arnold Classic. Yeah, yeah. When, when I went, when uh, the guy introduced me, on stage for the International Sports Hall of Fame. And he said, he said, and Bruno next month will be inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame. When Arnold heard that, right away he said, geez, I would really love to, to induct you. That's great. 
And I said, I, I, I wouldn't, I'd be honest with you, I didn't have the nerve to ask the guy. I thought, yeah. no, you know, because he had come a long ways from when I first met him. Not only became the greatest bodybuilder, but became big, 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 huge movie star. And the governor of California. Governor of California, two terms. <laughs> yeah. So I wouldn't have the nerve to ask a guy. In fact, I was nervous when I first met him because I thought, this man has had such enormous success. You see the Arnold that I met all those years ago? You see the same guy? I was, so I was hesitant but curious to see. I'm on stage. He's not there. And I was talking with Colombo, who was there, because I knew Colombo well. I'd worked out with them. And uh, and then I, my back, I guess, was torn because Arnold came up like this way on stage. And uh, I turned around. Somebody said, there's Arnold. So I turned around to see Arnold, and he looked at me, and he said, Bruno. He says, what happened to your hair? <laughs> I, says, I says, I got old, Arnold, and I lost my hair. He said, you had the hair. I said, well, anyway. anyway, he gives me a hug. He says, gee, I was so excited when I heard you were going to be here. I thought, wow, wow. That's I thought, cool. That's Arnold. Yeah. You know, that's mm-hmm. the Arnold I knew, you know. He never changed, nah. which is cool. And so he came to New York, as you saw. He inducted me. You know, uh, that's, that's the only thing I can say about him is that with me, He's the same Arnold I ever knew. I was surprised and pleasantly surprised that I didn't see any drastic changes in him, you know. So what can I say? Still your old buddy, right? Yeah. When you were talking about the the hard training that you did and and how how big and strong you were, uh, was there other guys in the business that 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 you could that could keep up with you? Like who else were the real muscle guys back then? Because you're talking when you came in, it's a lot of Ray Stevens and Pat Patterson and, and and you know the Crusher and guys like that who were more the barrel-chested guys. But as far as the muscle guys, who else was there at the time that you could kind of that was strong? That was strong like you. Chevy of Yukon Eric. Yeah, he was pretty strong. Okay, but no, no, wait, please don't misunderstand what I'm going to tell you. He wasn't in my class as far as the lift side. Powerlifting, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, he, he, he was a wrestler, and he trained, and he had good strength, so he pushed some decent weights. But not those kind of weights, because he had never been a fanatic like I had become. Had he been a fanatic, maybe he would have been a fanatic. Right, 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 right. You know, and there was a guy named... Uh, the, we had different, used different names. Uh, Pepe Chichero or Manny Cortez. I don't know if you ever heard of him. Yeah. He got killed in an automobile accident. He was a, a, a weightlifter, a wrestler, and he was pretty strong. But like on the bench, he was considered the best till I came around because he did around 450. Legit. Legit. Right, right, right. I don't know about any his other lifts because I, I didn't see him uh, do the stuff, but I right. remember that he that he did do a 450 bench. But in all honesty, because I had become such a fanatic at it, in all my travels, and I went all over, I didn't meet anybody that was lifting exactly what I was lifting. I don't know. I hope I'm not boasting. No, no, not at all. But, but you know. I'm, when you're talking about a guy like Yukon Eric of just, like, brute strength, what about a guy like Andre the Giant? Did he have that strength just from how big he was? Well, see, I never saw Andre. I, I was good friends with Andre. We met many, many years ago in in New Zealand. I, I, I was touring Australia. From Australia, I went to New Zealand for a couple of matches. And he looked like a basketball player. He was a tall, skinny guy. <laughs> wow. I didn't see him for about five, six years. Then I'm booked in Montreal. And I seen this big gorilla come in. And it was Andre the Giant. I couldn't believe it. He went, 
I don't know what he weighed when I first saw him, but he, he looked skinny mm. almost. Now all of a sudden, he's like close to 500 pounds. Did, did the acromegalia kick in, the giantism kick yeah. in in that meantime? Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, because we, we became friends. And uh, like when we'd wrestle in Baltimore, I would take him to dinner at Little Italy in Baltimore. It was a place called Sabatino. In oh, yeah, the classic place, yeah. yeah we you know went the there in the 90s, yeah, all the yeah, time. Sabatino's. Really? Yeah. yeah, well, I used to go there all the time yeah. after my matches. Mm-hmm. And, and with Andre, because Andre would always say to me, hey, boss, are you going to eat? I said, yeah, I'm going to go over Sabatino. Oh, good. He said, I'll go with you. What I noticed about him at this stage of his life, I ate as much as he did, because back then when I was big, and when I was two seventy-five, I, I had a, I had an appetite. I'll tell you, <laughs> but I couldn't keep up with him. No way, you know. He, Andre didn't like to be alone. You know what he did to me one time? We were in Baltimore after Sabatino. We come back to the hotel all the day in where we were staying. I had to go to the men's room. When I went to the men's room and I came back, he had uh, I don't know fourteen or uh, fifteen beers on the tip and he separated them like seven of them were mine you know why he would do that because that way you couldn't leave he didn't want to be alone didn't want to be alone and I couldn't drink that I couldn't keep up with the guy when it came to drinking I mean I could have a few beers I liked wine Uh, but you know but uh, that was Andre unfortunately uh, we became good friends but you know what happened he had that disease sure and he just kept growing and growing and growing when you're talking about drinking and not drinking much, I mean your schedule was insane as as, as the world champion, uh, wow. being one of the one of the, the biggest stars in WWE history, one of the greatest champions. How did you get to that position with Vince Senior, where he put the title on you for was it ten years? That's insane to think about in this day and age. Uh, two months short of twelve years. I mean, just think about that to wait is now where the title changes hands on. Oh, but it's a, a different basis. business. Sure, it is. Sure. It's a different. First of all, I'm probably this is this will be a little bragging, but it's the truth. You can brag; it's okay. <laughs> I'm the only guy, probably in the history of wrestling, who both times begged to get the ti- get rid of the title. I couldn't take it anymore. You, you politic to lose the title. Most yeah. guys politic to win to the title it, to keep it. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Uh, what happened was this: <laughs> I had been in, in ca- working for Frank Town in Toronto, and I worked for him for a year and a half. And Frank Tani was, uh, uh, to me, he was a wonderful, wonderful guy, a great promoter, nice guy. So I came in there and, and requested, because I had had problems prior to that. I'd been blackballed a little. It's a long story. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I wound up in Canada because I, I had to get a job. I had a wife and a kid, so I had to get a job. Uh, construction. I was working. I was a construction worker, a laborer. But they were having a show in Pittsburgh the, from Buffalo. Pedro Martinez was the promoter. I went to see uh, to see the guys because I knew a lot of the guys were on the show. So after I got through working, I went home, took a shower, got dressed, and I went to the arena. The, uh, it wasn't the, the, the Civic Arena. That came later. It was the Duquesne Gardens, actually. I went to see the guys. And so when I went there, all the guys were there. New Con Eric came to me, and he said to me, are, are, you, uh, are, you, are you still out of the business? I said, yeah. I said, there's no place for me to go. Anywhere I go, uh, the door slams on my face. I said, uh, so I'm, I'm working, uh, though I got a job, construction, blah, blah, blah. He says, listen, why don't you try Toronto? I said, why? He says, it's dead. 
He says, and Frank Tani is really looking for some fresh, somebody new. He says, there's a lot of Italians, too, that live around the Toronto area. He says, you know, he says, you might uh, might find that uh, might be a good place for you. I said, well, I said, I don't know, Frank Tani. So he took my number, and he says, we'll get in touch with you. I'll get it. He told Frank, Frank actually called me on a Sunday. And he said to me, Bruno San Martino? I said, yes, sir. He says, I'm Frank Tani. I promote here in Ontario. He said, I heard from UConn, told me blah, 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 this and that. He said, I would really would love for you to come up here and uh, work for me. And I said to him, I said, Mr. Tani, I said, I would really love the opportunity. I said, however, I said, I don't want to come up to Toronto. Then you get a phone call from somebody saying that I'm some kind of a troublemaker or something like that. Is that why you were blackballed, because you had a reputation, or someone said you had a reputation of being a troublemaker? Well, I had a reputation because... Uh, you stood up for yourself? It, it, uh, okay. You know, it involves Vince McMahon Sr. Oh. I started out with them. Oh, That's okay. where they came to me. I didn't go. To, I was on a TV show because I just won a state meet. Because you, because you're a powerlifter and you were winning all these. Yeah, yeah. And uh, when when they heard on the on this TV show that beside the, Bob Prince was the, the voice of the parts, he had his own television show. He asked me while I was on the show. He said, "Bruno," he says, are, are "You, uh, I, you just won this big contest." Are you still wrestling? Because I used to go up at the University of Pittsburgh to work out with the pit wrestling team. I said, yeah. I said, I, I do that about three days a week. Rudy Miller was his name. He was an old German guy, nice guy. He was working with Vince McMahon and Toots Mond. You know Toots yeah. Mond, but he was with them. Toots was Vince's partner, partner basically. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, he was running the studio wrestling in Pittsburgh. Channel 11 at the big every Saturday studio wrestling. So he was in town for the studio wrestling uh, on the night before, which was Friday, because it'd be Saturday. They start early. It was in the afternoon. He happened to be watching TV that night, and he catches this show with Bob Prince, and I'm the guest. Because Bob Prince used to watch me work out not only with the weights, but he used to come up at the field house and watch us work out on the floor. So I got to know him that way. And uh, he invited me on his show when I did that thing. And I had never done a television show. I was really nervous. So I went. And while he's asking me about the weightlifting thing and wrestling, Rudy Miller happened to be watching. So when he went to the studio the next day, he inquired. He said, does anybody know this uh, Italian kid named Bruno San Martino? And a kid named John Carzonis, a Greek kid, had gone to Shanley High School with me. He told Rudy Miller, says, yeah, he says, I live in the same street as Bruno. I went to high school with him. He says, could you please tell him if he would come here to the studio next week? So the following week, I went to the studio. And uh, he looked at me, and he told me who he was. He, he took me to the bathroom. He wanted me to take my shirt off because I was big. I was, like I said, 277. Right, right. And he seemed to be pretty impressed with my looks and all that. And he said to me, you wrestled. I said, yeah, I've been wrestling for a number of years. And he said, do you speak Italian? I said, well, I came from Italy. So he said, listen, I'd like you to come to Washington, D.C., that's where Vince had his office, you know. Oh, Capital it, Sports. Capital, Capital, uh, yeah, Capital. I never knew that. Makes sense, Capital Sports. Yeah, they Sports. were at a place called the, the Franklin Park Hotel uh, in Washington, D.C. So he gives me money for a plane ticket, 
And I went. I was married now. I had gotten married about three, four months prior. You know, I, I was just 22 years old, going on 23. So I went to Tootsmont, Vince. They wanted to see what I looked like. Then they took me to uh, the arena. They didn't say a word to me about wrestling. So they put me in with a guy named Jack Vansky. He was an amateur wrestler, but he was a pro. And he, they said to me, like, see, work out with him. Well, you know, they didn't say enough, so I went in and I worked out with him, you know. And I did what I knew as an amateur wrestler. And in all honesty, not brag, I did, I did well. You didn't try and stretch it or anything like that? Or did he, he tried, but I was too strong and too big for him. And he, couldn't, he really couldn't do a hell of a lot yeah, with yeah. me. And uh, so they seemed to be impressed with that, especially Toots. And they said to me, how would you like to become a professional wrestler? I said, well, I don't know. I said, what do I have to do? He said, we're going to train you for a month or two, and then you get on the road. And I said, I said, well, the Steelers had approached me, Hart Rooney. I told you Hart Rooney right, to come right, up. Right, 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 right. He wanted uh, me to come to summer camp because I was big for uh, uh, in those days for alignment because their big star was Ernie Stotner, if you ever heard of him. 245, he's in the Hall of Fame, great football player. 240, good shape. He played both offense and defense. So, because, you know, wrestling, you know, with wrestling, good leverage and everything else, yeah, sure. there's a lineman that comes in. And, and I said to him, Mr. Rooney, I said, if I do come, what can I earn? Because I want to help out at home. I meet him like a horse. My poor dad don't make too much money. They said we could start you off at about 7000 a year as a lineman. A lot of people find it hard to believe, but that's what I like. You, they <laughs> yeah. made back in the 50s. Yeah, yeah. Well, when Rudy Miller and Vince McMahon and Toots Mont, when I asked, the, uh, actually it was Vince and Toots, well, what can I make if I try this wrestling? They said, well, we could, I think you could start off at about 30000 35000 a year. Well, to me, that was big. I'll tell you why. I was working construction at the time, and I had joined the union as an apprentice carpenter, and I was making $2 an hour. <laughs> so when he's talking 30 I said, whoa. I said, yeah, I'm interested. <laughs> so for the next month, I'd go home on the weekend, they allowed me. I'd drive home because he didn't pay transportation. Those days. Right, right, right. And I'd work out uh, at the gym with uh, Van Skin, another guy named Cowboy Bradley. Uh, for about a month, and then they start booking me preliminary matches, and that's that's how, how, how I started. Sure, sure, but th th then that led you getting blackballed. Well, I got blackballed because after I uh, got in the business, started working well, and I'm catching on a little bit. I wasn't great by any means, but I'm you know I'm, I'm yeah, doing okay. Figuring and it people out. believed in me because I looked pretty impressive in those days in the ring, and they believed they thought I was strong and all that kind of stuff. And um, Buddy Rogers, you heard of him. Yes, of course. And his crew, he always had an entourage of wrestlers. And they would take over a territory. They came to New York. So Buddy, what he would do, he would have both baby faces and heels for them. And if the territory had already had baby faces, he would always get uh, the promoters to have things his way to use his guys to go over these guys and then he would program with his own guys because right, gotcha. there he felt very secure yeah, yeah 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 all of a sudden here I was the guy they were calling me the strong, the Italian stallion because I was in Madison Square Garden I picked up a Stax Calhoun and the people yeah. who was about 500 pounds or 450 640 yeah I thought I would know it was 640 because they used to announce him at 601 
and a newspaper guy in New York, when they when I lifted him up and they were saying six hundred and one pounds, he thought it was BS. In in the garden, they used to hold the circus every year, so they had those scales, <laughs> right? And they and and he wanted to see what's up. So when they got Calo on the scale, instead of weighing six hundred one, he was six forty. And the guy then really gave us a build-up. He says, unbelievable. He says, I seen it there. I was with my own eyes when this guy actually picked him up like that and all that. And I became like the world's strongest wrestler they started advertising me at. But Buddy came in the territory. All of a sudden, I go, believe me, I was not a prima donna. And I know that I understand that you've got to get a start. You've got to start from the bottom. But... When he came in, all of a sudden, I'm wrestling guys like, I don't know if you ever heard these names, Buddy Austin, Johnny Barron, and they're all beating me in the mm-hmm. middle. Well, I had learned enough about the business. In those days, when you depend on your living with the arena, if you're not a headliner, you ain't going to make yeah, much nothing, money. Right. And I hear I had a job, I had a wife at home, and I'm going to be away from home, and if this is what I'm going to be, it ain't worth it to me. I just shouldn't go back home and work. Have a job and be home every day. Right. You know. So I complained about it. Well, they thought, like, you know, who's this young guy to complain? Next thing I know, uh, I told them I wanted to leave. I was, I was going to leave because I was approached by uh, Rudy Miller, a promoter in San Francisco, which was Roy Shires, and a guy named Johnny Doyle. Yeah. And they said that they would love to have me in San Francisco. So I got booked by mistake. In Baltimore and Chicago, on my last date, I knew Chicago. I didn't know Baltimore. I went to Chicago, and from there went to San Francisco. Uh. Baltimore. I'm in San Francisco for a week or two. I'm in a dressing room, ready to get changed. I had put put my boots on, and the commissioner walks in. He said, "Is there somebody here by the name of Sam Martino?" And I said, "Yes, sir." He said, "Real rude." He said. Forget those boots. He says, get dressed. You're not wrestling tonight. I said, what do you mean? He says, you're not wrestling. I said, why? He said, you're suspended. I said, for what? He said, look. He said, you're suspended. You're not wrestling. Forget it. And he walked out. So Johnny Doyle came in, who was partners with uh, Shard. I said, Johnny, the guy told me I'm not wrestling tonight. He says, yeah. He says, did you know you were suspended? I said, no. Suspended for where? For what? He says, I don't know where, but somewhere you didn't show up, and you got suspended. Wow. And everywhere I went, that suspension held. So, so Vince Sr. had that type of power to kind of, <laughs> your first, your first uh, uh, knowledge about the politics of the business, right? <laughs> so he was able to get that kind of power. But, then, but, but Frank Tunney in Toronto didn't care about the suspensions or the, the blackball, so to speak? Frank Tunney. When I went there and I told them, you might get a phone call. I says, and then you're going to tell me to go. I says, I have a wife. I said, she's pregnant. She was pregnant at the time. I have a job. I said, I said, I, I don't. He said, no. He said, you come here. You keep your nose clean. Where is words? And you don't have to worry about anybody or anything. Okay. So when I went to Toronto, I wanted to help myself. Like I said, I was learning now. I was p- picking up a little bit. Because that's the business. You have to stand up for yourself in the business. Yeah. You really do. That's oh. just the way it is, as you, you know, as you know, as you're yeah. finding out. Right? I don't know what it's like today. I can't say because you know, I've been out of it yeah. for too many years. Yeah. But in my day, 
uh, you know, it was what it was. Right. And anyway, so what I did, I thought, I'm going to help myself try to, if he's going to give me a chance. There was an Italian newspaper in Toronto. I contacted them, and I bragged. I did, to be honest with you. I said, look, I come from Italy. I can do stuff, I says, that not too many people can touch. They thought, you know, probably it was <laughs> So they came to the Y, and I mean, I, I really went out. I did five reps on the bench with 500 pounds, five straight reps, strict. I squatted with over 700. I did that, then I did some press, and I did some, and they were impressed. Uh, two days later, uh, a headline in the Italian newspaper in the sports section is that Il Sansone Italiano means the Italian Samson. The Samson, oh. Samson. <laughs> And then an Italian uh, TV station, um, uh, the, the owner was a guy by the name of Palombo. He saw that, and he invited me to come to his show. And he wanted me to do some feats of strength on his show, and I did. And Frank Tani was thrilled. He thought, wow, the publicity. We have. And all of a sudden, people start coming to the Maple Leaf Garden. And then his TV went all over Canada. So all of a sudden, he's getting requests to go to Winnipeg. I went to Winter. <laughs> yeah. And Calgary. And I, you know, all over everywhere. Quebec, everywhere. Montreal, it should be a regular there. And uh, and and lucky, I got lucky. I started people were coming out. And Frank Tony couldn't have been happier. After about a year, I, I get a phone call, not from Vince, but from a guy named Ace Freeman. He was the local promoter for Vince in the Pittsburgh area. They had their own office mm-hmm. here. I came home on a Sunday. I used to come home on a Sunday every two weeks from Toronto. Carol, my wife said Vase uh, Freeman called and he said that when you go home if you give him a call so I called Ace because I knew him and I, uh, Ace what's up he says listen he says, you've got to call Vince McMahon I said why he says he wants to talk to you I said well why didn't he call me he says hey don't question it and he got me ticked off he says you call him he says you're nobody he, this is Vince McMahon. I said well he wants to talk to me I said, no, I'm not going to call him. He thought I was nuts. Next day, I went back to Toronto. I come back two weeks later, and my wife says, Ace Freeman said to me, she didn't call. So I call Ace again. Ace says to me, Bruno, are you crazy? I said, what do you mean? He says, you didn't call Vince. I said, I said, Ace, you told me Vince wants to talk to me. I said, you know I come home every two weeks, so I told you that. He wants to talk to me. He can call me. I said, I have no reason to call him. He called me a couple weeks later. And he said to me, listen, he said, you don't belong in Toronto, you belong in New York. I said, Vince, I was in New York, and things didn't go all that well for me. I'm happy where I'm at. He says, listen, you come back to New York, and you can do real well. See, what I found out, Buddy, you have to know Buddy Rogers. God rest his soul. But Buddy was a great worker, and he looked great. A great presence in that ring. But Buddy used to like to shotgun everything. I don't know you heard that expression. Sure. That. But when you do that all the time, you wind Mo- up killing ru- the territory. Rushing through the angles too quickly and not all building. Yeah, That's all he did. And and he would kill a territory. And then he'd move on to some to other To the other one, yeah. <laughs> and he was making money. So that's what he was doing in New York. And New York was, doing, was in bad shape. Bad shape. They heard the success I'm having in Canada. 
and Tutsman said, see, we had him here. There's, with all the, you know, anyway, they, they wanted me to come back, and I kept them. No, they wanted to offer me a weekly guarantee of minimum 500. I refused. Then they called me back. They said they'll give me 750. I know that doesn't sound like much, but back then no, it was yeah, okay. Yeah. And I returned down. They said, well, what do you what do you want? What does it take? I said, put me in the ring with Rogers. I wanted the title. They said, well, buddy, me and buddy never liked each other. His body won't go for it. I said, well, then it's your problem. Anyways, things happened, worked out the little gimmick there. And I went back and I got the title. And that's, So you won the title from Buddy Rogers? I, that's right. The first time? I beat him, yeah, in 48 seconds. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's how, how, how was that uh, to get in there with him? Obviously, he had a He was told to he it. was going to beat me for, and, and they were going to pay me. They bought me for $3,500. They said that for $3,500, I was going to do a job for him with the figure four leg lock, and he bought into it. They had to do that because if they told Rogers to lose the belt, he would have faked an injury or something. He would have never showed up because he had that reputation. I'd never heard that. So they told him. It's the old classic. They told him one finish and told you the other finish. So you went in there knowing that you could take him down. When we went in, I told him, when the referee's given our instructions, I said, forget the BS, do your best, because I'm going to do my best. And he looked at me, didn't turn out to be a shoot, let me tell you what happened. He looked at me like, well, what the, what the hell am I talking about? Well, what is he saying? I said, do your best, because I want to do my best. But we had a sellout crowd over there, so I wasn't, so I, I, I didn't turn my back to go to my corner, because I didn't trust the guy. I backed up to my corner. He turned around and he went to his corner. The bell rang, and I came running across that ring like a bull. I grabbed him. Like I said, in those days, I was pretty strong. I grabbed him. He tried not to go up when I spun him out, but I scooped him up in the air, really drove him for a body slam. And this, even though this was all a work, I, I pricked him up for the backbreaker, but I told him, I said, buddy, give it up. Because, you know, when you got somebody up, he's helpless. I can do anything I want. And that's a very uncomfortable move to this day, the backbreaker. It, it does hurt. <laughs> it really does. But just think what you could do with it if, if you want. I mean, you could really do something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I never heard him say anything, but the referee told me to put him down, put him down. So I put him down, and he raised my hand. Wow. So he out. And that's, that's how it happened. That's, and that's, I love stories like that because that's how the business has changed, is that would never happen now because guys are different now. But that, just, that's, that's such a, a classic story, especially for the title, especially, like you said, if he would have known, he would have just not shown up or left, left, left town or, or gotten injured or whatever it may be. Well, Buddy was known for that. Yeah. He had that reputation. That was kind of the vibe. A lot of guys would do that from time to time back then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what was your relationship with Vince, Vince Sr. like at this point in time? Now you're the champion. Vince, by the way, let me make one thing clear. He didn't like that idea of doing this. It was Toots Mond. Toots didn't like Rogers. Twitch didn't trust Rogers, didn't like him. Vince, on the other hand, uh, he, he, he liked Rogers. He got, they got along. You know, he liked him. He liked him. Uh, but he didn't want any, any that stuff to go on. But Twitch did. So after it happened, there was bitterness from what I've heard, because I wasn't present. Vince met with Rogers. Vince had a place in Rehoboth Beach, Maryland, summer place. He met him there, and he told uh, more or less Rogers that, uh, you know, was towards, which was the truth. He didn't lie. 
and that it had to be because he needed a change. Things weren't going too well. He's a body. He says, I can still keep you in the organization, not as a wrestler, but as an agent. Body accepted, but he and I weren't speaking to each other. So Vince got me aside and he told me one day at his office, he said, Bruno, he said, look, what happened happened. He says, we go on. He says, Buddy's going to be an agent. He says, so he says, you know, I don't expect you guys to start being real good friends, but let's just be civil, cooperate. I said, hey, I have no problem. Then I'm booked in uh, in uh, uh, Philadelphia. Not the, the, They didn't have the spectrum yet. They had the, uh, the arena, the old arena. It was an old boxing wrestling arena. And a book there with the Hans Mortier that I mentioned to you before. But I'm coming back the following show, which was going to be three weeks away, with Killer Kowalski. So Buddy Rogers gets me and Hans Mortier, comes to our dressing room, and he said, I want the one-hour Broadway. I didn't say nothing. I said, one-hour Broadway? How does that make any sense when I got to come back with Kowalski next month? How do I go Broadway one hour? Well, when you go Broadway one hour, we usually would have a return match. Yeah, yeah. That was the yeah, idea sure. of the one hour. I didn't say nothing. I went, and I had, and I liked Hans Mortier. And he had that European-style wrestling. And so I thought, I'm going to go with... Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go along, but then I'm going to find out about this. I have to check this out. So I wrestled him for one hour. The next day, I called the McMahon on the phone. I said, Vince, I said, I need an explanation. You know I'm coming back with Killer Kowalski next month. I said, how does it make sense to you that you have me go one hour Broadway with Hans Mortier, a draw, and i got to come back with Kowalski, and you're going to expect me to draw? He says, well, it wasn't supposed to be a draw. I said, ah. I said, thank you, because that's what I thought. So I said, well, Vince, then listen to me very clear. I said... Don't ever have that guy as my agent again involved in any of my matches because I will never go along with anything. I don't want him around me, I said. I said, Vince, I mean that. I said, don't ever, ever have that guy. And he kept him away. He would never book. In those days, we had the, the, main, the, the main club and the secondary club. He started putting Rogers in the sec. Any um, club that like I was the prelim, be in. the prelim guys, sort of the the club would be. The, oh, you mean the other well, there crew? There were some top guys, but they weren't two different shows. Yeah, two gotcha, different gotcha, shows. gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, two different were, crews. Yeah. used to run three shows a night. Gotcha. And uh, so, so he put him in the secondary clubs. And after a while, I don't know what happened, but he quit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's what that's what happened with that. What was your schedule like in those days when you had the title? I tell you what, uh, Chris. It, it was a killer. Because of Frank Tani, I told you the story. Because Frank Tani had been so good to me, when I got the belt back, he talked to me and he said to me, Bruno, could I count on you every two weeks to come and do the, uh, the, uh, uh, the Maple Leaf Garden? I didn't have the heart to say no to him. This man had given me a break. He had kept his word. He had, you know, I, I couldn't say no. My wife was disappointed because she wanted, I was only going home two days out of the month. I said to her, I said, this man has given me my break. I can't let him down. So I told him I would. So what would happen? Vince would book me six days a week, every week. I worked six days a week. 
And then uh, uh, twice a month on the seventh day, I would go to, I mean, on a Sunday, I would go to the Maple Leaf Garden. Well, you know what, Chris? I did this for eight years almost. Eight years last two months, I think it was. My body was shot. Yeah. Those hard rings. They were just some of their boxing rings. And oh, they were yeah. hard. Some of those rings were like concrete. And my body, my, I was hurting from head to toe. And I, I told Vince, I said, look, Vince, on my seventh year, I said, Vince, it's time you go shopping for somebody. My body, I said, I feel like I'm cheating the public. I says, I can't do what I like to do. I'm hurting. I'm really, really hurting. I says, you got to get somebody else to take over, to right. carry on. I said, because I need the rest. I need to get out for a while. Well, he stalled me for almost a year. And finally, I said, Vince, get somebody or I'm just going to go. So he went and he got uh, Ivan Koloff. Koloff took the title from me. And then Pedro Morales took it from him. And it went on. In the meantime, Chris, I really started loving the business again. I had it made. Here's why. All the promoters, they knew now that I was free. I was free as far as... You know, the WWE, WWF. Sam Mashnik would call me to use me in the Kiel Auditorium in St. Louis. So I went there. Paul Bosch wanted to use me down Texas. But here's what I would do. If I went for Sam Mashnik for a shot there, I would take off the next four or five days. In other words, when I got these calls, I would schedule them that I would have time in between. Dick the Bruiser and I teamed up in the Midwest. Right. So Dick and I became tag team partner. So I'd come in for Dick for three days, and I would take off ten days. I'd go to Japan for Baba that I'd gone to many times because I liked Baba. I'd go for two weeks. I would take off to ten days to two weeks. And I loved the business. They're giving me a nice percentage for my for my time, for my era, you know, for those days. And I'm and I'm spending a lot of time at home Healed my body. I'm pushing good yeah, weights. Lifting weights, eating right. And then Vince contacts me. And he said to me, Bruno, he says, listen, he says, we need you to come back. Now, I said to him, Vince, whenever you call me for a shot in Boston, I, I always, because he, he would call me, Bruno, can you make Boston? Boston needs a lift. Or, or Baltimore needs a lift. And I would always accommodate him, you know. But now he wanted me back for all the, the, the major clubs. I said, Vince, I cannot go back to those days. He says, no. He says, here's what I'll do with you. He says, you just work the major clubs. He says, right now you're averaging at least a couple days a week. He says, you'll average a couple days a week because we run about two or three big clubs a week. So he said, you'll just work those and the other days you're off. I said, well, Vince, if you if we can do that, work that out, I'll do it. In fact, I met with Vince Sr. and Jr. at the airport when we worked this stuff out. And I agreed. He said, for one year, while I get somebody really ready to really take over and carry on. And I said, fine. You know, honestly, no, not this fault or anybody's. He kept his word 100%. So I was fine with it. So when one year went by, I didn't go to him and complain. I figured, you know, he gets somebody who's going to come to me and say to me, okay, we, we, we can move on. 
So one year went to two, two went to three, and on the fourth year with Stan Hansen, I break my neck. <laughs> and that's when I said, Vince, time to get somebody else. And so he said, uh, uh, well, you know, okay, give me a little bit of time. And anyway, that's how we then that went, went that. after that. When you were the champion for the, for the 10 years, were you getting paid on a percentage of the house? Yeah, Along but, with a guarantee, or, or just on percentage? Percentage, but, but small. Like I would get maybe four percent or five percent of the net. You know, okay, nothing. You know, you know. But but, don't, but for me, no, no, sure. I, I, I never held them up for more or anything like that. Never did. I was very satisfied. But that's how champions got paid back then on a percentage of the house. So yeah. if you were drawing bigger matches and bigger houses, you'd right. get more money. Yeah, yeah. Who? Yeah, like I worked Shea Stadium three, four times. I picked up as much as fifty grand for one show. Wow, yeah, yeah. that'd you be know, like your they, WrestleMania payoff. Well, for you. I don't yeah, know if it's that good, but 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 for me, you know, it was great. I never complained about stuff like that because. Like I said, I always look back where I come from. And I thought, sometimes I felt guilty. I thought, who the heck am I mm. that I should be on that Yeah, sure, sure, sure. You know, I was always very grateful for who, that. who were some of your biggest feuds at that time? Were your, biggest, some of your biggest angles and biggest best opponents? Okay. Uh, I always did big business with Kowalski. Did big business with Ivan Koloff. Did big business with Turo Tanaka, mm. you know the Jap, yeah, Japanese guy. Yeah. Bill Watts, we shot an angle. We did, we did great business. Spiros Arion, if you remember that mm. name. But the biggest one was my protege, where we turned him away. I mean, unbelievable, Larry Zabisco. Which is unbelievable because that was Zabisco's basically his first angle, yeah. and I don't think he ever got anything no. as big for the rest of his career. Well, he messed up because when we did that program, which was amazing, the the business we did. There were promoters. They all wanted him. And I told him, take advantage. I said, we're, when we're through with this program, take advantage while things are hot. He felt like, um, I hate to say it, but he felt like he was so established now that he could pick and choose. He didn't understand that the angle we did was so hot, did so phenomenal, but it was with he and I. Right. And he didn't understand that once you got... Because when he used to wrestle, when I wasn't around and he wrestled sometimes after we did the, the, our whole program, they would put him in with like Ivan Putski, Tony Gurria, and they weren't drawn so good. And he, would, he felt like they weren't drawing. He didn't understand that his power came because mm -hmm. of what we had done. Sure. And, and in that respect... He messed himself up. I thought that he lost that big time. Big time, right. Because at the time when things were hot, Crockett wanted him. Roy Shires wanted him. And there were other promoters. I can't remember them mm. all. But he turned them all down. And that match culminated in a Shea Stadium match. And was that the same night when the Ali Inoki fight happened? No, that okay, was, was me, and, me and Stan Hansen. Oh, that's when where broke you broke my your neck. neck. When I broke my neck, I'm in a hospital. Vince was calling me at the hospital every day. Bruno... This match is going to be a bomb. See, Vince had committed for the close circuit for the whole Northeast. Right. And I don't know how much. I never find out how much money he committed to, but evidently committed to a lot of money with his Bob Arum, the boxing promoter, and things were dead. The Ali Inaki thing was a total disaster. Kept calling me at the hospital. He said, Bruno, if I don't make the match, we, we might go under. He says, because I've committed with so much money. He says, that we're, we're, I said, Vince. So you broke your match with Stan, and then he wanted you for the rematch, which yeah. was the Enochia Oh, yeah, fight. because gotcha. that was going to be the big thing. Right, 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 right. 
I said, Vince, I'm in a hospital. They had this great big halo thing on me. And this is a legit broken neck where you needed the oh, halo? Oh, my God, yes. Got slammed on your head I sort of thing? I came within a millimeter being paralyzed from the neck down. They said that, you know, the lariat. It wasn't the lariat. I came off the rope, and he picked me up for a slam, and he dropped me right off. He slipped or something. bad timing, yeah. And he just sl- slammed me right down on my head. That's how I broke my right, neck. Right, right, right. And uh, I was in the hospital for three weeks. Lost a lot of weight. I went from 275 down to about 250. And uh, it kept calm. I got to make that mega. I finally, I said, if it's that serious, this guy had to make it. Oh, my God, oh. my family, the doctor, the, the, they all, they came down on me like a dog because they were so mad. My, my Sivitrice, his name is Dr. Louis Sivitrice. He says, you dumb son of a bitch. That's what he, how he talked to me. He said, do you know that you came within a millimeter being paralyzed from the neck down? Well, you know, Vince said to me, Bruno, we'll protect you. We, we, we'll do whatever we have to do not to add, you know, yeah, to yeah, create sure, a sure, problem. Sure, sure. He said, just so we can get the match. Just get you in the ring. Right. And then we'll work around it. And we did, and it worked, because we sold out all the closed-circuit arenas. Wow, so you saved the show. Well, we did. No question about it, because they died every place else. They died. They died. But we we did. How did you do the match if you had a broken neck? What did you do? I went and I I suggested Vince Sr. I said, have me come in the ring first instead of the challenger. And when I come in the ring, I said, people want me to get this guy so bad because of what happened. I said that what you do when you introduce him to come to him, I said, people are going to want me to kill him. You know? So I said, I'm not going to give him a chance. So when he came in and tried to come through the ropes in the ring, I immediately attacked him and started booting the heck out of him. And he was started bleeding from the head. And he, I booted him and booted him and booted him. And he took a spill outside the ring like... Like that. And then he got up and he staggered and he ran out back to the dressing room. <laughs> People went bananas. They bought it. perfect, all right. They loved it. And, and nothing. I, I was fine. And, and the show was saved. And we drew. We packed out. We packed uh, the the place. Was, 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 no, no, no. No, with Sabisco we sold out. Right, right, right. With, with uh, Stan Anson. It was, it was like 30000 or still something like great, that. Yeah. Well, you know why it was impressive in those days, Chris? Remember, you guys drawn 100,000 people. But remember, in all fairness, you guys, all over the country, you... you, you television and you're yeah, traveling everywhere, we, yeah. We just do the TV for local. So when we did these... Shea, I worked Shea Stadium three times. They were all just local TV that we worked with. We didn't have that... Sure, right, right, right. You know right, what right, I mean? Right, right. So, you know, in, in, in reality, that was pretty good, you know. Pretty Absolutely. Pretty. When you're a, a big star like yourself, like at the time, Bruno Sammartino is a huge name in New York, a huge name. So was Ali. Did you have any uh, any experiences with Ali? Did you know him at all? The match was supposed to have been me and Ali. Really? But he wanted $6 million. Vince McMahon Sr. contacted all the other promoters to see if they would pitch in to raise this money to meet the guy. They wouldn't cooperate with Vince because they felt that, sure, the match is going to be New York or wherever, and Vince is going to be the credit. You know, among the promoters, it was jealousy. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. And they didn't want Vince McMahon to be the big, big deal with this match where they were investing their money in there. And Vince could come. So that's when Japan heard about the whole thing. And the TV people over there, they were very powerful. 
they came up with the money and made with Enoch. The trouble with Enoch, he was a big star in Japan, but he was not the big not deal worldwide. anyplace else. Right. And that's why, you know, see, a lot of guys, there's jealousy in this business, and I think you know that. And I, I, I experienced that, too, because a lot of guys used to say about me, ah, Bruno, just northeast. It's the only place it means anything. Well, and and I lasted 25 years. Even though I had the belt for almost 12, but I was headliner for all 25 years. And I'll tell you my secret at the time, where I, I think I did learn a very valuable thing. I used to be a student of the matches. I used to watch all the matches. I, when I was the preliminary and everything, before my match and after my match, I'd be watching all the matches. The big stars of my time, you heard of Argentina Rocca. Mm -hmm. Yes. He was great. He looked great. And yeah. Eduardo Carpentier. Yeah. And there were a few other names uh, uh, of the time. And here's what I noticed about him. They would go in the ring, and they would basically, and they were the headliners, so the, so they would get the new opponents every time. And I would notice that they would do so many of the same things all the time. After a while, you you almost could call yeah, yeah, what was coming. Yeah. And that, to me, I was young, but I thought I admire these guys because they could do stuff I couldn't do. But I thought, but there's something wrong with this picture. And I really paid a lot of attention to that. So what did I do when I got my break and became the headliner? I used to study my opponent. Killer Kowalski had a certain style, okay? Um, Ray Stevens or had a certain style. So here's what I would do. If I worked with you and your specialty was a lot of high spots and wrestling, I would have that kind of a match with you. But if you were a brawler, like a Bruiser Brody and that, I would be a brawler with Dick Bulldog Brower. I would be a brawler because I knew that that's the best way I'm going to get the right. match with you. But besides that, because I was the guy who had to keep coming back to the same arena every month, every three weeks or every month, then I would be to that point where people could call my shots. Because I'm working with you in a roughhouse type match. I'm working with this guy, high spot. I'm working with Hans Mortier. We're doing all wrestling, just strictly wrestling. I wrestled Pedro Morales for an hour, 18 minutes, Shea Stadium. Not one punch, not one kick. Wow. All wrestling and high spots and wrestling. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But a lot of guys used to accuse me of being a brawler in the ring. I was a brawler, yeah, with brawlers. Sure, yeah. But that way kept me not so, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, look at Look at, not bragging, but I left the business on top. When I left the business, I was selling out all over the damn place. That was a pretty nice way to leave the business. Yeah. So it couldn't have been too wrong what I was doing. <laughs> and as far as these guys saying I was just big in the North Hill, in the North um, East. East. Well, promoters were always calling McMahon to try and get dates on me, but he had too many. Remember, in the Northeast, as you're not experienced, every city's got the major clubs. There was no other territory that had the clubs that the Northeast had. Because every city had the big arenas of 18, 20, 22,000 people in my day. So Vince couldn't afford to let me go. But when he did, when I'd go to Los Angeles with Mike LaBelle or San Francisco with Roy Shires or even, uh, 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 what's his name, uh, in Tennessee. Uh, Jarrett or no, Lawler? No, not yet. No, before them. Uh, Fargo? Whatever. Yeah, Nick Goulas. Nick Goulas, right, right. Nick Goulas. Florida. I always went on top because of two reasons. One, the magazines out of New York always had me on the covers. 
too, Madison Square Garden had its own television cable, and they, you could catch it everywhere around the right. country. So I was I was known everywhere and overseas as well. These guys say I was strictly. Well, the, the reality is that when they used to, when the promoters used to call up, what's his name, a Crockett would call up Vince. Vince, could you use Ric Flair because I want to advertise that he's in Madison Square Garden. Well, Ric Flair was working with Pete Sanchez, who was just a preliminary boy, because they didn't know who he right. was in New York. Right, right, and right, same right. same thing with a lot of the other guys. Yet they accused me of being <laughs> uh, strictly uh, the nor- uh, yeah, over there, you know, a New York guy, but like everywhere else. Well, when I went to Japan, every time I was in Japan, I never worked anything but main events. And I was there with the Flares. A lot of times. Sure, sure, sure. What did you think of Flair when you first came on the scene? Cause he, I th- okay, you want to know my honest opinion? I think Flair was a very hard worker. And I think he was, uh, took a lot of bumps. Okay, everything. If I have, and there's, it was great. But if I have one criticism about him, the thing that I was accused of being a brawler, I felt that sometimes he was repetitious. Whether he was a villain or a baby face, right, right, right. he was repetitious in the kind of match he had. If you ever watch Zabisco, not because I trained him, I worked out with him a lot, but when he was a baby face, he was strictly a baby face in everything he did. Mm-hmm. When he became a heel with me, he became a heel. And I respect that. Like, I'm just using him as an example. Sure, yeah, yeah, Because there were so. many, many others. But you see what I'm talking yep. about. It wasn't like he became a, a baby face and he worked a baby face. Then he became a heel and he would more or less do the same thing, only he was working against baby faces. He, he became two different characters. Right, right. I see you. I watch you on TV. I'll be honest with you. Don't take it the wrong way, because I mean a complimentary way. I was laughing, because I remember seeing you as the baby face. The sweet, nice guy, you know, the fans, <laughs> everybody loved. Now I see you with that sarpus, sarcastic, and everything else. I like that. No, because that's the That's the role. Right. That's the yeah. role. But some, not everybody can play that role. You know what I mean? Not everybody can play. You do. You do it great. You do it well. It's a rare thing. I'm not saying that just because you said that, but for someone that can play a heel and a babyface equally, usually some guys are better as a heel or better as a babyface. But if you can do both, that's the real secret to to the business. Absolutely. You know. Absolutely. What did you think, Bruno, when you mentioned when you finally did leave senior and then junior takes over and the transition of the business coming from the regional to now this nationwide pop culture phenomenon? Well, I'm sure you've heard. You didn't like it much at first. Me and Vince were not friends yeah. for 25 years. <laughs> yeah. Here's what I let me tell you what I resent. I'll be very honest with you. Throughout my career as a professional wrestler, for whatever talent I had, whatever talent it was, I did my very, very best to bring credibility and respect to the business. Right. That was extremely important to me. Okay. So I did the very best I knew how. To achieve that. When I left, I was hoping that it would get better as new talent comes. It would even it would keep growing in that way. When I saw the changes, for me it was a shock, the changes that came about. But I'll tell you the most bothersome thing to me that it worried me. The steroid era came into the picture. It wasn't so much because I didn't know about steroids all that much. I, I, I don't pretend that I fully knew it. 
But what I saw that bothered me, I, while I was still in the business and I saw guys that were getting into it more and more, and I kept saying, if something isn't done about this, there's going to be more and more and more of this. Do we want our business wrestling that we like and love to, to become something like that? That you know, mm-hmm. that bothered me. It really bothered the heck out of me. And I, I spoke out about it. I let Vince know. I did. Yeah. I faced him on uh, Larry King's show. Sure, and Donahue and all those Donahue. things. Yeah, yeah. yeah because I, and then the other thing that bothered me, to be honest with you, I started seeing the nudity in it. I'm a guy. I mean, I like, like sure, it. Of course. Stuff like it. But I'm talking about for, for our business. The vulgarity, like having sex with a corpse in a casket. Remember that? <laughs> yeah. Kiss my butt club. Yeah. These things, I thought, what are they doing to the professional wrestling? This stuff shouldn't be. It's not necessary. And then, remember, for a while, the language part was okay, too. I find that stuff offensive because I love the business. I honestly, in my heart, I tried the best I could to be the best representative of the business to make it, you know, as respectable mm. because I didn't like the criticism the, the media was giving it and all that kind of stuff. And I took steps, right, to make change. For can give you an example. 69, I buy a Rolls Royce. Why did I buy the Rolls Royce? I bought it because I thought for the media, hey, this wrestling can't be too bad. I don't see baseball players, football players with a Rolls Royce. This is professional wrestler. The champion rides a Rolls Royce. What publicity we got from that, you have no idea. I didn't give a darn about the car. Sure, sure, sure. But it got I always had the suit tie as a champion, and I traveled that way worldwide, everywhere. Mm-hmm. All these things. So when I saw these changes, it bothered me. I admit that it bothered me a lot, and, I was, and, I would never, and that's when I, 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 I was outspoken about it. I know a lot of people resented me for it. I understand that. But after about a year and a half or so, I said I gave it my best shot because I don't want to see guys die. I don't want to see all this stuff. I, I, I don't think that it meant anything. Nobody listened. So I said, my conscience is clear. I tried my best, and now it's time to shut up and move on. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. So when I then I blocked it out. I wasn't watching wrestling anymore. So then when I, I was first... Uh, with this Hall of Fame, when they first started the Hall of Fame, in all honesty, the first year, and they brought some people, my name was never even mentioned for it because we're not. And there was a lot of resentment from the fans. How can you call it an Hall of Fame without Bruno? Oh, yeah, yeah, We did this and that. And this continued on. I don't think, I don't know if they expected that or not. I have no idea. But I kept refusing it. I said, as long as they continue with this sort of thing, I said, I don't want no part of it. Mm -hmm. When, when I have to say this about Paul Levesque. You guys know him better than I do, of course. Triple H, yeah. Triple H. But he called me up many years later. This is, you know, 20-some years had gone by. He told me about the Hall of Fame, that he would like me to come in there. And I was still wasn't watching wrestling, and I told him that more or less I wasn't interested. He said, Bruno, I heard some of the things you reject. He says, we have legitimate drug testing now. Dr. Joe Maroon. Well, I knew Maroon. He's the guy who's been operating on me. Helped your neck, yeah. No, my back. Oh, your back, okay. He did, uh, he did four back surgeries on me. But we became friends during this time. I met with Joe Maroon. And Maroon told me that the, sh- the strict testing they were doing for wrestling 
was stricter than they were doing in it's football. It's legit. Yeah. yeah it's well, legit. I believe him because yeah. I know the man. I said, well, gee, that's great. Then Paul told me, watch wrestling, and you'll see that you won't see that the, the, the vulgarity, the profanity. We're more family-oriented. And for a couple of months, two, three months, I saw it. So and you watched, you were doing your research. Absolutely. Yeah. I did it all. It took eight months altogether between me and Paul. But then I was I believed him. I was convinced. And I thought, this guy, as far as I'm concerned, he's honest. He's a straight shooter. That's how he was with me. And I, that's when I said, hey, I, I always said, if that ever changed, I'd be, I'd, you know, and, and that's when I agreed to come in. And that's, that's, that's. What was your uh, first meeting like with Vince Jr. when you first I came I never in? met him until oh. I came to the garden that day. I talked, all this time I talked with Paul, but I never talked to Vince or anything. So when I came in the the garden that night... The, For the Hall of Fame? The Hall of Fame. He was in a, in a room by himself, and they, Paul told me, Paul and Stephanie said to me, my dad, my dad he said, he's in there, he said, we'd like you two to be alone and meet with each other. I was, I was curious what his attitude was going to be, so I was going to let him make the first move to see how I would <laughs> Just like his father so many years earlier. You call me. <laughs> so, so when I came in, and he was standing there, and he looked at me, I don't know if I read him right. He looked like like a little uncomfortable, maybe as I probably I may have looked the same way. I don't know. Yeah. But the first thing he said to me, he put his hand out, and he says, welcome home. I shook his hand, and I said, well, Vince, on present conditions, I'm happy to be back home. Basically, that was that. That's cool, yeah, yeah. And now you have a relationship with the company where you do stuff? I respect the company. I'll tell you what I respect most. With all my differences I had with Vince, but I have to take my hat off to him for this respect. He cares about you guys, the talent, and here's what I mean by that. I don't know all that goes on, but when I see the changes he's made in the rings, I know you guys get hurt, can help get hurt, because you do a lot of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. High spots things. and stuff, yeah. But, but it's not that concrete-like ring to where you, you, you're going to get crippled up mm. no matter what you do. I, I, the, outside the ring, instead of the concrete floor, which is still there, yeah, but yeah. you have mats. I'm not saying that they protect you 100%, but they there's give, some give to it. There's yeah. some give to it. Absolutely. You know, the rings don't seem as high. So when you go over the top rope, it doesn't seem like you go as far Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 totally. I, I take my hat off to that because that's caring about the boys. I see where he, he offers drug testing, anybody that's may have a, a bit of a problem. Uh, if somebody gets hurt, I understand from what I'm told that they yeah, take true. care of Well, for that, I say hallelujah. That's wonderful. I take my hat off to him. I respect that, and I, I appreciate to see mm. that. Because in my day, it wasn't, it wasn't like that. I broke my neck. I was in a hospital. <laughs> They're nobody, calling you to come back. Nobody paid for my hospital bill. Really? Nobody uh, paid me for the that substitutes and all the clubs that I was. Uh, they sold out. I all the tickets that, uh, that were sold on your name. My name. Somebody else. And I never got compensated. Wow. I never got a dime. So they never paid your your medical expenses. Nothing. I paid all my own stuff. Wow. It was. So that's why I say. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I like to think that I'm a fair guy in this sense. I'm critical of you if you give me reason sure, in sure. my mind to, to do that. But if you do the other, I, I'm man enough to come back and say, hey, yeah, oh, great, right. yeah, congratulations. Yeah, totally, yeah. You know, 
And so with Vince today, I, I, I respect him because he's done great things. That and, and look at you guys. So many guys have become millionaires. Nobody became millionaires in my day. So I have to give him credit that he brought to the level to baseball, football, where guys were making money comparable mm-hmm. to these people. Mm-hmm. That was never in the business before. So I, I, I take my head off to, to, to from all these You guys things. never had the merchandise. You never even had ring music. You didn't have music playing you to the ring, did you? What music? No. You would just walk out there. Just walk out there, and, and I, but I'll tell you what, was, what was, used to give me goosebumps. I step out of the dugout. As soon as I came at 20,000, we start chatting, Bruno, Bruno. <laughs> I, used to, I could never get used to that. They just used to give me goosebumps. And you used to energize you. Yeah. You went in a rig when people had like Natural that, music, know. real, yeah. Oh, my Lord, that was something just, else. Just as we're starting to wind down, what did you think of, uh, like, the biggest champion after you was, Ho- was Hulk Hogan? What did you think of him? Obviously, he's a big guy, but he had a great connection with the fans. But as far as, as, as a drawing champion, how did you feel? You mentioned you went to the Garden three times uh, a month or whatever it was, he would come once every six months. Was it a look, difference? Look, I don't want to take anything away from the guy. The things I didn't like about him was the fact that I, I didn't like the fact that uh, it was obvious that, and everybody knew he was a steroid user. Mm-hmm. I thought there was a bad example for kids watching the, 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 the at business. the time, right? Yeah. Two. I think he was extremely lucky guy in this sense. He's the most publicized wrestler I've ever known yeah. in history. The most famous wrestler ever, probably. Ever. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, but he was not what they make him out to be. And here's what I mean by that. I was 52 years old. I'm doing, I came back. He's a color commentator with Vince. Yeah. And Jesse. Jesse. Yeah. <laughs> Vince asks me to put on the tights at that age to give Boston a lift because Boston was down bad. And he also wanted me to give a lift to Philadelphia, Washington, Pittsburgh. And I said to him, but this Hulk Hogan that you publicized so much, he's your champion. He was the world champion at the time. Why do you need an old guy like me? Why? Because Hogan, you could bring him in a show and he would draw you a big house. Bring him back three weeks later the house takes a, a nosedive. Mm. He, he, he was not the guy who can draw. If he had, a, if you depended on him, if it was in my day, to come in every three weeks or four weeks, the club would be dead and he'd be dead. He, he's not that kind of talent who can work a match to for return after return gotcha. after return. He could never do that. Whereas with you, you could come with an opponent three, four times to the guard? I'd work sometimes three, sometimes four times with the same guy. Gotcha. And I would do that all over, all the major clubs mm-hmm. everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then by while we're doing that, we get somebody else ready on television, build them up, so that when I get through with them, I come in with the guy and do the same thing all over right, again. Right, right, right. wasn't easy, believe me, because you had, to work, you, had to, you had to work each match accordingly to come back to the next month, and then for next month to give reason for the month after that, and to give reason for the month after that. So there were a lot of thought in how you worked the match that was extremely important in order to continue successfully. And no bragging, but I did that for almost 12 years, and I gave up the belt. I was the one who dumped the belt because we were still doing it. And my last program was with Zabisco. 
how better, how sweet is that to go out <laughs> selling out everything? Right, inside? right, 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 right. You know, Hogan was not the man not to that do guy. That. He was the guy that you could bring in, uh, like you guys do now, where you don't go to the same clubs on a regular basis. Yeah. So he would he would have been good back in those days those if right. you brought him in that shot. But don't bring him back because I've seen it when when like he came to Pittsburgh, him and Paul Orndorff. They, had, they didn't sell out, but they had a really good out. They came back the following show and they dropped 40% the mm-hmm. game. Because people had a, seen the match. Huh? People had seen the match. So, That's yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. He was very limited, in my opinion. Do you watch the, the show now? Do you nah, watch yeah. Who, who's some oh, of your, I see you. I told you <laughs> what I see. Who are some of your favorite guys that you enjoy watching? I'm not just telling you because you're in the interview. I, I love because I saw the transition. Oh, thank you, yeah. I love that because you do it right. Mm. I mean... <laughs> I laugh because I say, here's this guy. He's such a nice guy. <laughs> Fans are like, now all of a sudden, look at this guy. Arrogant, you know, so and so. I like that. I, 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 um, look, I, a lot of people criticize. I, I hear the people, and it bothers me when I hear people boo John Cena. Mm. I, I think John Cena works very I hard agree. in that ring. I agree. I think he does well. From all that I hear, I don't know the guy that much. I hear he's a very decent guy. He is. I hear he does a lot of good charity stuff. And it bothers me that people don't appreciate 100%. They say, yeah, but a lot of people cheer him. Yeah, but I don't want to hear 50% or 30% or whatever it is to, to boom like that. <laughs> I see, um, uh, but, I, but I, think he, I, I think the guy deserves I agree. M- much better th- than he gets. I see some of the other guys, you know, like I see this. I don't understand the business today <laughs> in, in many ways. I see this uh, Roman Reigns. He's, he's treated more like a villain than a babyface. I'm cu- I'm, and why? He's huh? a good worker. He's a good-looking guy. He works right. hard. He always has good understand. matches. Yeah. I don't understand the fans, how, how it's changed. Yeah, from then to now, you know. Twenty years ago, he would have been the top baby face. People going nuts for him at all times, and that will happen eventually. Yeah. But you also have to, you almost have to go through the you have to go through a different process now to get there than you did twenty years ago. Yeah, it's just different. The fans are different. Yeah, in my opinion, you know. Yeah. In my day, if you were a baby face, you know, they, usually they loved you. I mean, honest to gosh, I'm not bragging. But any area I'd go to, everybody used to explode into my name. And when I'm getting the, the, the beating, beating up, I'm getting the worst of it, people start saying, Bruno, Bruno, like to, to, to energize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, come on, get up, you know, come on, go after them. You know what I mean? It, 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 stuff like that, that's how supportive they were. They were, you know, in the garden for years. It changed later. For years, if you were... Uh, 16 and under, you couldn't even go to the garden. Really? Yeah, yeah, you had to be over 16. You know. Wow. So our audience was strictly... Uh, uh, Which also uh, makes no. it more impressive, the, draw, the houses that you were drawing. Yeah. You know, yeah. with no kids there. No, no. Wow, wow, wow. If, uh, last question, if, if you had to pick some of your favorite matches, is there some that stand out in your mind, like one or two or three, they're like, oh, that was a great for one. For me? Yeah, for that you. I that you were in, yeah. Uh, uh, Pedro Morales, because we went an hour, 18 minutes, strictly... Yeah, baby face match and people loved it and he stood and all that kind of stuff. That was great. Uh, uh, Ivan Koloff uh, had some tremendous matches with him. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard of Aldo von Eric. Heard of him, but I never saw. I went an hour and a half with him, nonstop, one fall match in Madison Square Garden. People stood because it was it was so exciting match. 
Kowalski, I did mention Kowalski. It was great. Don Leo Jonathan. Mm, he was a yeah. big guy, right? Six foot seven, 350 pounds. Wow. And he was like a featherweight in that ring. He could move. Mm. Move like a cat. These guys, Tanaka for a Japanese guy, 300 pounds. There were a lot of guys. I couldn't name one or Yeah, sure, guys. sure, sure. But there were honestly You're thinking guys. more just opponents rather than just specific matches. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These guys were great, you know, and the, and the matches were different. You had a different match with Kowalski than you would with Ray Stevens. Sure. Like I went hour-long match with Ray Stevens. Completely different match. Mm. Total brawl. Kowalski rough more. Yeah. Uh, and holds. Ray Stevens, a lot of high spots, some wrestling and some rough housing. Did you work with Pat Patterson at all? Yeah, I worked with Pat yeah, yeah. when he came around New York. Did you yeah. have good matches with Pat? Yeah, Pat, oh, yeah, yeah. Pat was a good Pat's worker. very much a mentor for, for myself and yeah. a lot of guys. No, Pat, very Pat smart. Good, you know. but Pat, him and Ray Stevens were a terrific team Yeah, in San Francisco. They were a great wrestling team. No, Pat was a very good worker, no question about it. Somebody asked me to ask you a, a question about when you fought a monkey. Do you remember fighting the monkey? Orangutan. <laughs> okay. This will be the last story you got to tell me, fighting the orangutan. Well, that was before I became a pro. Okay. I was working construction, and I was a big guy, and everybody at work, you know, they used to, because I was a young guy, and I was very strong, and, was a, and a carnival came to town, and, and uh, they said that they would uh, give $50 to anybody who could last five minutes with the monkey. So this iron worker, a guy by the name of Sal Williams, he came to me and he said, uh, Bruno, how would you like to make 50 bucks? Well, I'm making $2 an hour as an apprentice carpenter. <laughs> we were building, by the way, the Hilton Hotel. You see it? Yeah, yeah. I was working on that. Okay. And I said to him, what do I have to do? He said, the guy got a monkey. They have a, the circus is in town. And it's a wrestling monkey. And he said, if you can last five minutes, you get 50 bucks. I said, five minutes? I so I did. I asked him. I said, well, how big is this monkey? He said, yeah. He says, it's a monkey. I said, well, yeah, okay. Yeah. I said, I'll take it. 50 bucks. So Friday, Friday, <laughs> this was on a Monday. On Friday, all the guys get in their trucks or whatever. They all come to the carnival for, to see me wrestle this monkey. This is a true story. This big cage was there. It was called covered with canvas. And there was a guy who was the, the, the head of the guy. And he's talking to me about it. And he had a, a, a thing in his hand. He says, we're not responsible for anything that might happen like to you. a contract or a waiver. Yeah, waiver, you're yeah. doing your own free will. And I thought to myself, I signed. I thought, boy, they got a lot of confidence in this monkey. When they unveiled that darn thing and I got in the cage, I couldn't believe my eyes. It was a big orangutan. And because of the way it was standing in there, it probably looked even bigger than it actually was. I don't know. But I thought, oh, my God. I thought, that, I didn't, I thought a monkey. I, I pictured the monkey, you know. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I had to get in the cage, and all these guys from work, every, hey, Bruno, go get him, you know. And I get there, and they close the cage door, and I'm standing on the corner, and I'm looking at this thing, and it's looking at me. All of a sudden, man, out of the blue, it came charging. Always hanging on to the bars, but his feet were like two pistons. Kicking you. On my head, Kicking yeah. Kicking the face. And I'm trying to duck and this and that. And I'm getting a heck beat out of me. So I thought if I could get behind him somehow, and if I could get a hold of him, bring him down on the floor, then maybe, maybe I can do something. So I'm trying to get behind it. I finally succeeded, got behind it. 
Chris, I kid you not. I got behind. Now I'm a big guy at this time. I'm 270, 275. I grab it from the behind, trying, and I'm going to pull it down from the bars and get him down on the floor. That thing starts swinging around the cage like it had a flea on its back. That's how strong it was. I'd never seen anything so powerful. It was so strong, it was just swinging around, and I kept slamming my back against the steel bars until I had to let go, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, man, I was sore. With one time, with one arm, he swung at me, literally lift me, lifted me off the, the floor and slammed me against the cage. I didn't want to quit because I was embarrassed, and I stayed with it. Fifteen minutes I fought that damn thing. Fifteen? Fifteen. I noticed something. He was hanging there, and I could hardly see my eyes were blown up, were puffed up. I saw his belly was going in and out like breathing heavy, and I thought, oh, his stomach looks like it's soft. So I like I snuck up like a little bit while I was over there, and I plunged at it. I thought, desperation. I gave it one shot in the gut, and he dropped off from the thing. The owner starts screaming Bloody Mary that I cheated because I punched it. You know, not a punch, the wrestle. And you know what happened? I got beat. I got to beat the heck out of me when it was all over and done. I accomplished a little bit because I knocked them off those bars. But they stopped it right there, and they wouldn't pay me because I cheated. I didn't get it done. And I, I was all puffed up. I was a mess. <laughs> you lasted 15 minutes. You should have got 150 bucks. <laughs> I just got a good beating. That's all I got. Bruno, it's been a pleasure talking to you, man. What an honor to be here with you tonight. I uh, Thank you. Thank I think, you Chris, so much. I enjoyed it. It was thank a good time. Much. Let's get have some food and another yes. one of your – what's your special drink, by the way? A martini. A martini. All right. Thank you, sir. Thanks again to the legendary Bruno Sammartino. What a legend, uh, pioneer, and such a great guy. I mean, what an incredible story. And I'm so uh, honored that I had the opportunity to talk to him about his amazing life and times uh, at his favorite Italian restaurant. Uh, thank you, Bruno. What a great guy you are. Um, and uh, what an honor it was to, to get a chance to hang out with you and talk to you. And it was called Rico's. So if you want a chance to go to get some great Italian food in Pittsburgh, go check out Rico's and tell them Bruno Sammartino and Chris Jericho sent you. And if you want to hear ridiculous fake news and stupid ads, you know where to go to. Team Tiger Awesome, delivering the laughs every week right here on Talk is Jericho. Check them out now. Summer's coming, bro, and it's gonna get hot. So stay cool with a hot spurt. The Better Getter Mouthwetter made from 17 different juices and spices. Close your eyes and open your mouth, because with this many flavors, you'll never know what flavor's coming. Our unique formula is devised to be drunk hot, because when your mouth gets juiced with a hot spurt, the rest of your body is scientifically proven to feel cooler. So grab a can and shake it hard. At a barbecue, sneak behind the shed for a quick spurt. At the beach, drink some spurt beneath the waves while the crab watches. Why not end a night in the club by spurting with someone you just met? Spurt. For more spurt flavors, listen to the Team Tiger Awesome Show every Sunday on the Jericho Network Podcast One. And stay cool out there. 
And you know you get more of this ridiculous nonsense with Team Tiger Awesome every Sunday when they drop new episodes. Go subscribe at Apple Podcasts. Be sure to leave a five-star rating review for all the great shows in the Jericho Network. Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon, Killing the Town with Storm and Cyrus, The Raven Effect, Keeping It 100 with Conan, Beyond the Darkness, and of course uh, the uh, True Crime Tuesdays on Patreon.com with the Beyond the Darkness guys. Go check that out. Only five bucks a month and you can uh, sign up for that and get uh, ad-free, commercial-free every Tuesday, a new true crime show on Patreon.com with the Beyond the Darkness guys. You can also get tickets to my Words of Jericho show in my hometown of Winnipeg with my special guest Lance Storm and Cyrus, August 25th at the Club Regent Event Center. Tickets available at Ticketmaster.com. Don't forget Fozzie and Hardcore Superstar. Heading over to the UK and Europe starting uh, in October, October 28th, I believe. Go to FozzieRock.com to check out all the places that we're going to be at. It's uh, England, Ireland, Scotland, uh, there's Italy, Germany, Belgium. We're going to be all over the place. Switzerland, Austria. So come check us out there. And don't forget, uh, or do, and if you're going to be in Tokyo and Singapore, Singapore, June 28th, Tokyo, June 30th, and July 1st, I'll be making uh, my last WWE matches for a long time in Tokyo at the Sumo Arena. I'll be wrestling with Hideo Itami uh, on uh, June 30th. Come check that out. And, of course, this Saturday uh, in Seattle, Pain in the Grass Festival, uh, we're going to be there playing with... Um, Stone Sour, Pretty Reckless, Corn, Fozzie, great festival in Seattle at the White River Amphitheater. Lots of stuff going on. Thank you so much for following me. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for checking out my great sponsors, including ddpyoga.com slash Jericho. 20% off the DDP Yoga app and all DDPY match. Sax, go to saxunderwear.com slash Jericho. 20% off your first order. And, of course, Geico, save money on your car insurance. Thank you for listening. Keep listening for the 60-second AP News headlines coming up next and on Friday. Wow, we're keeping the uh, the combat uh, uh, shows alive. We're talking about the big fight that's coming up with Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor. We're going to the original version of that. Muhammad Ali versus Antonio Inoki. Journalist and writer Josh Gross has written an amazing book about this story, this historical match. He's going to share some of the details he uncovered about the circumstances that led to the legendary fight and the fight itself. His book is called Ali versus Inoki, the forgotten fight that inspired mixed martial arts and launched sports entertainment. It's available on Amazon now. Ali versus Inoki. It's so legendary. Vince McMahon was involved. Trust me, you're not going to want to miss this one. It's one of the greatest uh, fights of all time. Uh, or was it? We're going to talk all about it on Friday. We'll see you then. But in the meantime, in between time, stay hard, stay hungry. Peace, love, and hugs, and a big yeah, boy. Listen to new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday on the Podcast One app. Or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com.